So um, thank you to Hamilton Morris for giving me the title of this <laughs> podcast episode. Andrew Gallimore is building a DMT machine to connect us to the alien worlds. Mm, kind of. That's kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not building it, but... Um, that's beautifully stated. Yeah. So um, thanks for coming, first of all. Uh, thanks for bringing your books. Beautifully designed books. Thank you very much. Um, what do you do? And how did you get into this world of psychedelics and doing what you do now and studying these extended stay DMT trips? Oh, it's a long story, Danny. I'm ready. I got, I got at least six hours. Well, I mean, how far do you want to go back? I mean, when I, when I was really young, like pri well, primary school age, I don't know what grade that is, but like seven, eight years old, really young. I was interested in ghosts, and vampires, werewolves, the unholy trinity, I used to call it. Um, uh, weird things, weird experiences, um, much to my parents' concern at the time, because I was kind of too young to be interested in sort of dark right. occult kind of things. Um, but as I grew and you know, got into my teenage years and started thinking about my future. That kind of morphed into an interest in, in psychedelics. Um, and I remember a friend, I've been talking about psychedelics for a while. This was before I'd ever had any actual experience. Something about the stories that I'd heard about psychedelics kind of appealed to me. And uh, I remember a friend bought me this magazine to school and it had this Terence McKenna mm -hmm. interview on the back page. And um, he was describing his favorite drug, something called DMT. Uh, and this just, this just fascinated me. I thought, oh my God, this sounds incredible. You know, th these incredible, you know, he's characteristically kind of Baroque oratory on, on, on DMT is, is inimitable, really. And I thought, okay, this is a fascinating... I didn't know what DMT meant. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what DMT stood for. I had to go to the library and look up what DMT meant. Um, I got completely the wrong answer um, from this book of acronyms or something. Um, but I knew from this point that I w wanted to study psychedelics in some way. I was maybe 16 years old. Mm. So I thought, okay, I need to study pharmacology and chemistry. So I did. I went to university and studied chemistry and pharmacology and kind of developed a reputation amongst my friends at that point as being this kind of drug guy, this guy that liked drugs. And um, it all kind of developed from there. Um, and it wasn't until maybe 15 years ago that I started really thinking seriously about DMT and as my scientific understanding of drugs and their pharmacology and the way they interface with the human brain kind of matured, um, I started to realize that DMT was truly something remarkable, that it wasn't just any old psychedelic. Um, it was some something much more profound, if you like, and um, 
but even then, uh, it wasn't until I actually um, experienced DMT for myself, and by this time I had the best part of a decade of Terence McKenna lectures and his books and under my belt. You know, I'd he- I'd heard all the stories. Wow! So you were you were deep into this before you ever experienced it personally. Exactly, um, and I thought because of that, I'm, that I'm prepared. You know, I thought, okay, I know what I'm going to see. Uh, I know what it's going to feel like. Um, I know, you know what kind of experience this is going to be. But I was completely unprepared. It, um, it shocked me to my very bones when I first experienced DMT. And it wasn't even a breakthrough experience, mind. This was sub-breakthrough. Sub and yet I was confronted with this undeniable immense intelligence, um, this inordinate complexity, um, this hyperdimensionality, this, this thing was far, far more than I could possibly have imagined. Uh, and I remember lying on my bed, coming back from this experience, kind of reconstructing my human self. Um, and just all I could say was, oh, my God, oh, my God, I was shaking. I was shattered. All of my fundamental ontological assumptions about what is and isn't possible had been uprooted, uh, had been obliterated. And so that was the moment when I really thought, OK, I'm going to devote my, my life to this technology, as I prefer to think of it now rather than just a drug molecule. I think of it as a, as a, as a technology. And mm. since then, I've been evangelizing and writing and speaking right. and thinking about DMT. How did we first discover DMT? So, well, I mean, DMT has a history of use in humans that goes back thousands of years in traditional preparations. So right. uh, ayahuasca, mm-hmm. these snuffs, cohoba snuffs, yopo, um, this goes back thousands of years, but actually, the the first time that kind of Western the Western world um, uh, realized the or when the psychedelic properties of DMT, the molecule, uh, were first discovered, um, that was back in 1956, I think. So this Hungarian physician. Uh, Stephen Zara, he was, he was, you know, at the time, this was not long after Hoffman had discovered LSD, of course. So psychiatry at the time was becoming increasingly interested in psychedelics and their potential for studying consciousness, for studying the human mind, for studying um, disorders of consciousness, things like schizophrenia. And so Stephen Zara he became interested in psychedelics and he tried initially uh, to get hold of some LSD. He failed. Uh, he was behind the Iron Curtain at the time. So he he got some mescaline instead, which he consumed and he had a beautiful experience on Christmas Day. Um, but then he turned his attention to these cohoba snuffs, um, these in, uh, used by indigenous tribes in Amazonia. And there had been some previous research on these snuffs, which... What is a snuff? What is a snuff? So it's like a, 
Um, so the cohoba snuff specifically is a ground up, ground up seeds, roasted seeds of this plant that contain a mixture uh, of different tryptamines, but in particular bufotenine um, and 5-methoxy-DMT and also DMT. And the studies at the time had come to the conclusion, erroneously in my opinion, and in the, the opinion of Stephen Zara, that bufotenine was the major hallucinogenic or psychedelic component of these, these snuffs. So yeah, the snuff, to kind of go back to your question, the snuff is, is it's ground to a fine powder and then forcefully. So you have this fine powder, very, very fine, a bit mm. like, uh, you know, rapé. I'm not familiar with rapé. Okay, so that's a, that's a powdered tobacco snuff. Um, this gr fa fa uh, The seed is finely ground up and then placed into a long tube that's maybe a yard long. Oh, wow. Yeah, and there can be up to a teaspoon, I've read in certain reports of this, is laid out in this tube. One person on one end, the mouth, the other person puts the tube up their nostril and then, you know, forcefully um, blows, you know, forcefully blows this into your skull. I mean, it's it sounds like an appalling experience. Uh, I'm sure it was extremely painful. The eyes start running and mucus starts flowing from mm. the nostrils it's blood you know it's not it's not nice mm -hmm. um, there's certainly more efficient ways to consume psychedelics than that so i don't recommend it to anyone <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination um but these had been used for hundreds at least hundreds of years mm -hmm. um yeah so the studies of the snuff um that had been done the kind of chemical analysis uh, isolated bufotenine and th what they actually did is they took this bufotenine they injected it into a group of inmates at the Ohio State Penitentiary, I believe it was, and tested the effects. And they went purple, and they felt nauseous, and their blood pressure shot through the roof. And it was, it wasn't, you know, there was some kind of imagery that they saw, geometric visions, that kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't convincing to Stephen Zara that this was the, the conduit to the gods. This was how they communicated with the gods. It just didn't seem that psychedelic. Hmm. Um, so he turned his attention to the other component that had been isolated, dimethyltryptamine. Uh, bufotenine is 5-hydroxy-dimethyltryptamine. It's a different molecule. Okay. Um, is that the one where they people talk about like being inside the sun when they're in there, that everything goes white? That's 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine. Oh, okay. It Got has it. an extra carbon. Okay. Um, so, yeah, but they're closely related. So Stephen Zara, he... He, he synthesized, he's also an, an organic chemist as well as a physician. He synthesized the DMT and he started swallowing it in increasing doses. Now we know now that DMT is not orally active on its own, so nothing was happening. You know, he went up, he started very low dose, few milligrams, increased, increased. And in the, in the end, he was swallowing like a gram of this stuff uh, and just nothing was happening. So wow. he thought, okay, maybe I'm just way off here. This is. I'm on the wrong track. I was wrong. Uh, but then a colleague said to him, have you thought about injecting it? So he injected it into a cat, first of all. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happened or what the cat said, what kind of trip report you got from the cat, but probably right. not much. Um, so he decided then to inject it on himself, uh, intramuscular injection. And um, that was it. He, you know, instantaneously 
within a, just a couple of minutes of the injection, he started seeing these beautiful, complex, alt, rapidly altering scenes in front of him. Mm -hmm. So he was having the, the world's first um, pure DMT trip It's sometime in April of 1956. Wow. Yeah. And so he got straight to work. You know, he got some volunteers from the hospital, nurses and doctors and stuff from, from the hospital where he worked and began the world's first kind of DMT human study. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. When did we first discover that our brain produces DMT? And can you explain how our current perceptual model of the world works and what DMT has to do with that? Yeah, so, I mean, I've never been that convinced by the idea that, uh, I mean, Rick Strassman particularly proposed that low levels of endogenous DMT were responsible somehow for uh, the way that we experience reality mm. in normal waking life. I've never been particularly convinced by that. So DMT levels, so DMT is very closely related to serotonin. Uh, which is, of course, an endogenous neuromodulator. Um, and it's not that difficult to kind of divert the metabolism from... So serotonin starts from tryptophan, which is then converted to tryptamine. And then you hydroxylate and you get 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is serotonin. You could also go in a slightly different direction and go from tryptamine to dimethyltryptamine. So it's very easy, in other words, to make DMT. And so way back in, you know, beginning in the 1950s, uh, scientists, psychiatrists were already thinking maybe there is some aberrant metabolism in certain people uh, where they produce more DMT than normal. And this is responsible for schizophrenia. Mm. So this was referred to as the transmethylation hypothesis of schizophrenia. So straight away, they were looking for DMT in schizophrenics. So measuring DMT in their urine, in their blood, trying to find a consistent, significant difference between DMT levels in schizophrenics versus normal people. How hard is that to do, to measure the DMT in somebody's blood? Um, it's not difficult to do, um, but it, it's, it turned out to be difficult to find any significant relationship. And this, this hypothesis uh, has kind of fallen out of favor now. There aren't really any psychiatrists um, who take seriously the idea that schizophrenia is caused by an excess of DMT. Uh, and hmm. it doesn't make sense, uh, to me at least, in terms of the phenomenology. Uh, the DMT trip is not a uh, is, is not the same as the schizophrenic experience. So it, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me that, that, that DMT is responsible for schizophrenia. And that would explain why they didn't get um, the results that they were looking for. Um, yeah, so in terms of what DMT does, uh, we kind of need to get back to, as you said, your model of reality that your brain constructs. So your the world that you experience in normal waking life, the world that you experience when you're dreaming, and even the world that you experience under the influence of, of DMT is always constructed by the brain. Mm -hmm. This is kind of, this is absolutely fundamental and it's something that I repeat and I repeat and I repeat because it's, the problem we have with DMT, I think, is the, the, the questions about it are poorly constructed. 
So people will say, oh, is it real or is it all in your head? You know, we, we, we've all heard that phrase, oh, it was all in your head. Right. But all experiences are, in a sense, all in your head. They're always being constructed by your brain. Your brain constructs your world model. Your brain, I like to say, is a world-building machine, right? Um, it constructs your world model from patterns of neural activity, patterns of a unified pattern of information, basically. Um, now, that applies under all circumstances. Um, it applies in dreaming, as I said. It applies in the DMT trip. So when you take DMT, your brain is constructing a different world model. It's constructing a different model of reality. Um, now, in the normal waking state, this world model is constrained, it's modulated by a constant trickle of sensory information from that thing outside that we call the environment, that we never have direct access to. It's a noumenal space. Um, it's not something we can directly access. So the world that you're experiencing now mm -hmm is this model. It looks like you're experiencing the outside world, but actually it's all, uh, it's all internally constructed within this light, um, sealed, you know, this black, dark um, space within your skull where, where your brain is. Right. The, the place people go when they do these things, like whether it be DMT or psilocybin or anything, mm -hmm. is, is that, is it things that are, already there like invisible that are just becoming apparent or is it just the mind like turning inside out on itself okay so this is this is this is the central question that i've been wrestling with um for the last 20 or so years right um we don't know the answer to that question but there are there are a number of explanations for the dmt experience first of all when you, when you smoke DMT, when you take any psychedelic, uh, it's the world model that changes. What, D, what psychedelics are doing is they are interacting with certain receptors um, uh, in deep uh, layers of the cortex. The cortex is the outer layer of the brain that constructs your world model. And um, the classic psychedelics, so that's DMT, LSD, uh, psilocin from psilocybin mm -hmm. um, they, they interact with these receptors uh, and they perturb the world building machinery um, and they allow your brain to construct uh, a different model so the model changes the structure and the dynamics of the model changes now with a low dose of something like psilocybin mushrooms the effect can be relatively subtle you get kind of an altered model of the normal waking world it's more fluid it's more dynamic uh, it's more sensitive to incoming sensory information uh, in that state but with dmt something quite different happens you terence mckenna used to call it a 100 percent reality channel switch your brain doesn't it's not just an altered version of the normal waking world but it's a completely different model of reality it's like switching the reality channel and the question is and it's a really difficult question to answer but it's it's the the kind of the orthodox explanation for this is oh it's your brain is just 
making it up. It's a, it's a wild cortical fabrication. Um, but that's never made much sense to me because we know uh, that the, the, brain, we, the brain wasn't dropped to earth ready to kind of construct worlds. The brain evolved to construct the normal waking world as a model of the environment. This is the world your brain knows, has learned, has evolved to construct. It knows how to construct one world model, right? So then you ask the question, well, how is it then possible that when you perturb the brain with this simple plant alkaloid, it suddenly becomes capable of constructing entirely coherent, inordinately complex, hyperdimensional worlds filled with seemingly uh, hyperintelligent beings. Um, where did it learn or evolve to construct these realities? It's, it's confounding to me, from an, from, even from a neuroscientific perspective. It's like, imagine a, a young American child who only speaks English. And, uh, you know, a five-year-old or something suddenly wakes up and starts speaking Cy you know, fluent Siberian Yupik or some South African click language. It would be shocking. Be like, where did he learn to, to speak this? And it's like, it's, it's similar. It's similarly confounding to me that the brain knows how to construct these bizarre alternate realities that have no relationship, no relationship whatsoever to the normal waking world. Nothing was taken from our world and brought into. Uh, it's a completely disjoint reality. And that is, to me, remains a great mystery, unless somehow the brain is receiving information from somewhere else that's, a, that's kind of constraining and modulating and, in, and informing its construction of this alternate world model. There, that is why it's such a problem, in my opinion, to explain DMT. Where could that somewhere else be? Yeah, we don't have a clue where this uh, this other space could be, um, and th this is this is kind of what I've sometimes referred to as the data input problem. So the normal waking world, as I said before, it, it's always receiving information from the environment. We understand how that works. We we understand. Uh, the stimulation, visual information, you know, the stimulation of the retina. We understand how sound information works. We understand how information gets into the brain to help the brain construct the normal waking world model. Right. So this data input problem is, well, if this DMT world is being modulated by information from elsewhere, where is this elsewhere? That we don't understand. Um, Might not be within the constraints of space-time. Well, Exactly, exactly. Uh, and this is where, well, probably getting to later, we start to think about um, where these other domains might be and the kind of relationship uh, between our reality and these other domains, and particularly the intelligences that we see uh, within these other domains, which are often you know, way beyond anything in this, we can imagine, in, in this universe. Now, everybody, when they do DMT, they always experience the same thing. They always experience these extreme geometrical patterns, and they all experience these so-called elves that mm. are dancing around telling them things, like giving, yeah. them, giving them positive messages. 
that are transformative in some aspect or, in, or another. Um, is this pretty much consistent through everyone? And is there is there in, how, how much deviation or variation is there from all the people that you've actually studied or talked mm. to that mm. experience DMT? So there, so everyone's experience is in some sense different. Everyone has to construct their own model of the DMT space, right? We all construct our own model of the world. Mm -hmm. Everyone's model of the world is in some way different, yet there's a certain consensus about what's what. Mm. We can never, I can never get access into your brain and look at your model and see if it maps to mine. I think about that all the time. Mm. I think about like, like I'm looking at you right now and I see this room and if I walk outside, I know like what the trees look like and what the cars in the parking lot look like. But I always wonder like through some, like how would you know looking through somebody else's eyes if they're seeing the same thing? We use the same language to describe That's these things. It. Yes. The language is the same, but we have no fucking clue if it's how similar or dissimilar it really is. Yeah, I mean, it, this is why we've heard it as a consensus reality because there is some consensus there. But I don't know if when you look at the color green, what that looks right. like to you is the same to me. But it doesn't because I have a mild, I actually have a very mild form of um, a color deficiency, mm. mild form of red-green color blindness. So my reds look different to your reds, mm. um, but we agree that they're reds. Um, and you can apply this, of course. I mean, I. It, it, we don't even know if I was to be able to look through your eyes, whether even that world that I saw would make any sense to me. And that's kind of wild, right? Mm. Um, it, it might be completely, com completely confusing and bizarre. Right. To look, but you, you make sense of it. Your right. brain has learned to construct that model of reality, right? Some people go through <laughs> the most of their lives not being able to see three-dimensional and they don't even know it. Right. I mean, there's, it's, you can get some... I mean, one way we know that your brain is constructing and how your brain constructs your model of reality is when things go wrong so there's you know a certain part of the visual cortex for example that's responsible for your experience of, of motion that, mm. that gives motion to objects in the world if you get a if you have this rare condition called akinotopsia where there's a there's damage to a very specific area of that cortex that's responsible for uh, motion information they see the world as a series of still images now i can't imagine what that's like um can you but i really can't Lord. you know but that's how they see the world and similarly uh, achromatopsia is when the color in uh, the part of the brain that represents color information is damaged specifically mm. and the world becomes black and white uh, to these people right um isn't is, i heard that um like something around 95% of the neurons in our brain are dedicated to vision I don't or, have or an absurd amount of the neurons in our brain are dedicated solely to vision. Right. We are a, a, a visual species. We rely on um, visual information more than any other information. I mean, imagine looking at the room now and trying to describe it in such detail uh, using words, using sound such that somebody could reproduce that the room to, to photographic precision you 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 know right imagine that right so clearly there's a lot of information there's so much information that we have in our visual world and all of that that information is represented by this unified pattern of neural information in the brain 
Wow. Yeah. Um, but getting back to the entities, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so to answer your question about do people see the same things, um, everyone's experience is certainly different. But there are certain universal DMT motifs, if you like, mm. um, that, that many people describe um, the structure, the ambiance of the space, the geometry, um, and also, of course, the beings within the space, the so-called DMT entities. Mm. Um, and this goes back, I mean, of course, it goes back to the, these indigenous tribes in Amazonia who are using DMT. They used it to communicate with beings. To, they call them spirits or gods right we might have a different name for them now but certainly it was clear um, that, that this is a, a, a characteristic feature of the DMT experience is the experience of other beings and Stephen Zara so you mentioned these elves right um, yeah Terence McKenna the, you know the elves the machine elves as Terence McKenna called them they're they're by far the most famous denizens of these hyperdimensional realms there's no doubt about that um, but and many people like to say well people see elves because McKenna saw elves and McKenna spoke about elves so that's why you're seeing elves and it's like uh, you know it's hard to get past that so what what we did actually a few years back is to go back to the original trip reports let's go back to the 1950s look at the trip reports there um, Stephen Zara's very first study. Um, now, unfortunately, back then, they, they weren't that interested in um, the kind of the details of the trip report. This is not like Rick Strassman's study in the 90s, where he carefully had them you know, write down everything they experienced. So if they, say, they would say, oh, I saw hallucinations. Uh, but you've, it, with, even within these old papers, you get these little snippets of trip reports okay. uh, that, have the, that, that had back then the, the characteristic DMT flavor. So they, they were describing this rapidly changing, rapid procession of complex geometric imagery. They were describing beings that they called gods, you know, language of the time, or they would call them spirits. That was that was the, the lexicon of the time, if you like. You know, you, you see a, some kind of non-human intelligence and you refer to it as a spirit. Hmm. Nowadays, we might call it something else. But one of Stephen Zara's first subjects described these little, little dwarf-like beings that moved around very quickly that's all we got but to me this is this is you know part of the the, the characteristic of uh, of these these dmt elves these very sprightly lively uh, beings often you know very cheerful and they kind of welcome you into the space and they they love to show you things all the time look at this look at this look at this uh, and they they were there in the first um trip reports um, and then you know through the 60s and, and on with people like Timothy Leary describing uh, elf-like beings and insectoid like beings and reptilians and there are certain types of uh, reptilians? reptilians man and they can be ferocious in um, in Rick Stasman's study uh, one of the subjects described being um, how should we say raped by by reptilians what yeah so yeah, there's yeah. bad beings in there oh yeah, fortunately, before anyone has become totally <laughs> kind of frightened by DMT, the vast majority of, of uh, entity encounters are either positive or neutral. Often they will... The just, majority. 
we're talking like 90%, yeah. But what about that 10%? Well, that's, what's, what's going on with those guys? Well, I mean, it's a, they, they, they vary as much in their character as they do their form. Uh, we wouldn't predict this was a all, you know, all beings of, of, of love and light. I mean, that's, that's to be expected, right? The same in, on Earth. We, not, not everyone's nice. Most people are nice right. to some, you know, yes. or, or kind of neutral. Mm. Uh, and this is the same in the DMT space. Okay. Um, they, they, they often seem to be aware of their, um, the, the, the large gap between their intelligence and what, I mean, this is their world after all that we're kind of entering if you like. Um, so, and they like to kind of have fun, some of them. So there's, there's a lot of kind of mocking uh, going on sometimes, mm. teasing, right? Kind of trickstery kind of behavior uh, with these entities. Um, um, they like to they like to scare you. Um, so, so you have to be kind of aware of that. But but there's no evidence that they can actually do you any harm, other than giving you a bit of a has, bit of bit of a scare. Has anyone ever? been harmed by dm i mean other than like abuse because i know i know personally people who in during their young age like through high school and through college that abuse psychedelics like lsd or mushrooms that they're they've been off ever since or like they never really cognitively recovered from mm. that you don't well i mean the problem with these longer acting psychedelics is that you've got a much better chance to get yourself into a bad headspace right if you know when things start to go wrong you start to freak out you become anxious or panic and um that can last a long time uh and so i think there's a greater potential for for you to get yourself in some really bad places with with psychedelics which is why because they last like hours and hours exactly with dmt for most people it's it's shocking uh, it's astonishing in mean, terence mckenna used to say the only danger with dmt is death by astonishment right you know these are shockingly astonishing you know, choose your choose your superlative i mean it, these are so bizarre and profound and strange and impossible experiences that they can they the, the real danger, I think, or the real risk is that you're, everything you thought was true, everything you thought you knew uh, about reality is about to be obliterated. You're going to come back and, and realize that you knew fucking nothing, that everything you thought was real or not real or possible or impossible, they're, they're, it's gone. It's gone. Uh, and there's no coming back from that. So you will be fundamentally changed in, in one aspect. Um, so you have to be prepared for that. But for me, that was a, you know, I, I was euphoric after I came back, having seen this and realized this. Um, but for some people, if you, have, if, you're, if you have a particular ideological position about humans and our relationship to the cosmos, um, then you know, you're in for a bit of a surprise, my friend, you know, <laughs> um, to say the least. Mm. Uh, but but for most people, it's 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 so rapid. It's like like being on a roller coaster. You're screaming, you're you're scared, but it, it it's wild. Um, but you don't get a chance to mull it over. You don't get a chance to think about the uh, the implications of it at the time. Only afterward. Yeah. So by the time you've kind of 
oriented yourself, if, if that's even possible within the space, um, you're already kind of on your way out. Mm. Uh, then you can, you can think about what just happened. And for most people, they actually forget a lot of the details. They come out ranting and raving and like, oh my God, this happened, this happened. And then it's like a dream. It kind of just it fades away and you can't remember details. Um, so, you know, mo for most people, there's no... There's no lasting, certainly not psychological damage. No. no. No, like, I've always been worried about, like, you know, I never tried hardcore psychedelics. Like, I never went past weed or, like, edibles. But I've mm. done edibles and had some pretty trippy experiences. Like, whenever anyone describes mushrooms to me, when I do an edible, that's what I experience. Like, it's it's wild. And I'm, I'm a hyper responder when it comes to any drugs. Mm. So any drugs I do, whether it be medications or like drugs drugs it just takes a little bit for me and i have like a crazy reaction like it takes me i just take one pull of a joint and i'm yeah. singing when it takes like you know my friends or anyone else anyone else i know who's with me they it takes they have to smoke the whole joint but for me it's only one pull yeah so like i've always been super scared of diving into that world and then on top of that when i was little i heard up when i was young i heard a story i don't know remember where i heard it but i heard a story about these two Marines that were roommates and one of them took mushrooms and the guy was tripping on mushrooms, killed his roommate, cut his heart out and cooked his heart in the oven and ate it. And after I heard that, I was like, I'm never trying mushrooms. <laughs> but yeah. there's a lot of those fake stories that yeah. came out like in the oh, yeah. early 90s. Oh yeah, I mean, those those stories go back to the 1960s. Yeah. People jumping off buildings because they, they thought they could fly. And right. there's no doubt, I mean, these drugs aren't without risk. Anyone who claims that uh, mm -hmm. shouldn't be listened to. They're, they're certainly, these, these are very strange head spaces that you're getting yourself into. Uh, and of course, there's the potential for problems. Then these are not drugs, these are not, party drugs for most people i mean some people do uh, like to use them as such but certainly for someone who's inexperienced you need to be very careful about what you're doing be in the right environment right uh, be with the right people someone who, who is not tripping and someone who's very experienced with mm -hmm. it so they can redirect your consciousness but all of that stuff dmt seems to kind of transcend set and setting i always say it has no relationship to normal human experience right um uh, and it's so fast there's not basically nothing you can do to prepare for it uh in my opinion um and there's no so another thing I would be concerned about is coming out of it and have sorting having like a lasting slippery grip on reality afterwards. Um, again, you know, DMT, what's something kind of remarkable about DMT is it's so clean and it's fast. You're in there and you're fucking deep, like deeper into this alternate reality than you could possibly have Im imagined before you go in there it's 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 uh it, it's it's just remarkable in in every way that this could this could happen that your brain can do this the brain can actually switch its reality channel with such efficiently and then you come out just as quickly um, and then within 10 15 minutes you might still be you have sort of an afterglow so normally a little bit euphoric uh, after having seen this, having experienced something that you can you couldn't have conceived of prior to DMT, but then you're 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 back to normal within 15, 30 minutes. And how old were you the first gone. time you tried it? Um, sometime 
in my early 20s. So relatively late, actually, for many people. I mean, I don't recommend people are taking uh, you know, DMT in their, in their teens or any psychedelics. There's this guy who has a... Um he has a really popular YouTube channel called All Gas No Breaks. I think they changed it since then, but he does like these really cool kind of like run and gun documentaries on weird subcultures around America. And he did an interview where he talks about how when he was like in his early teens, he did a lot of LSD, and now he is like perma tripping. Mm. He said he like sees hallucinations in his visual field all the time. Yeah, so this is called um, hallucinogenic post or hallucinogen post post hallucinogenic perceptual disorder. That's it. Post hallucinogenic perceptual disorder. It's quite rare, but it's it it does happen. Mm. Uh, we don't quite understand why it happens. There's not that much research into it. I would um, imagine it's not good to do this shit when you're like young and your brain is still developing. That's it. I, I would I would suggest the same thing. I, I, I want to advise people about what they do or don't do. It's their decision. But yeah, I think as your brain is developing, certainly you know if you're 15, 16 years old, you know seriously give your brain a chance to mature and develop mm. before you start assaulting it with any mm. kind of psychoactive right. not, not just you know lsd or dmt but any kind of psychoactives wait until right. you're in your 20s i would with say. anything either even yeah. if it's not psychoactive i see so many mm. kids that are in their like mid-teens now that are injecting testosterone <laughs> trying to like get jacked at the gym and it's just like what are you doing what to your you body doing, before you I mean yeah. you're fucking 16 years old yeah totally unnecessary yeah. so how so you said you were originally into chemistry right yeah how did you evolve into becoming a neuroscientist well the thing is is that to, to really understand psychedelics it's it's interdisciplinary it's multidisciplinary um and whilst understanding the chemistry is really important and the pharmacology right how do these molecules interact with protein receptors in the brain what effect does that have on these information generating cells these neurons in the brain that's the realm of um, chemistry and pharmacology but to really understand what's going on at the the cortical level at the global brain level how do these cause these effects on um, the structure and the dynamics of your experienced world and your consciousness that requires an understanding of neuroscience so you, mm. you need you need to be um, pretty conversant at every level from the, the chemical level all the way up to the global brain level okay and so after I did my PhD which was in biochemistry um, I, I realized that that the neuroscience part was kind of missing from my repertoire, if you like. So I thought, okay, I need to do a postdoc in something neuroscience. And so I, I, I shifted with great difficulty, I will add, uh, into a completely different discipline, which is neuro computational neuroscience. Wow. Uh, or so I, 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 That's I a nice sounding word. Yeah, it's sounds a nice, impressive. it sounds impressive. <laughs> yeah, that's another benefit uh, of studying that. Uh, because I'd, I'd spent... I'd spent years in the laboratory doing wet biochemistry, uh, which is some people like it. For me, I found it really tedious. You know, it's a slow process, growing cells, they die or they get infected. Uh, everything takes a long time. Uh, so I was tired of the lab. I, I wanted to get out of the lab, man. Uh, and um, 
So I didn't want to work, you know, killing rats and, oh God, can you imagine? Um, I didn't want to get into that. So I thought, okay, computational neuroscience. This is where it's at, actually. Modeling uh, brain function using using computers. That, to me, seemed like the, the way that the, the discipline, the field was, was moving. There's only so much you can learn from... Um, studying wet brains. What were you doing studying wet? Like, what specifically were you doing studying wet brains and and studying rats? Uh, I wasn't, oh, and I didn't. Weren't. I didn't want to. Oh, okay. uh, that's the thing. Um, so I thought, you know, computational. That's that's the route. So I did a couple of postdocs. I did one in England, uh, York University, and Oxford University, um, studying synaptic plasticity. Mm. computational models of how neurons communicate and how those connections change over time as we learn etc uh, and then after that that contract finished I, I, I an opportunity opportunity shall we say opened up in Okinawa in Japan uh, and I'd always wanted to live in Japan since I was a teenager for some reason don't ask why, because I don't know why yeah. I did. And I tried to learn Japanese when I was a teenager as well, but really? failed at it. Yeah, because my German teacher said I couldn't. There's something fascinating about Japan. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm on season three of uh, Man in the High Castle right now. Oh, really? Have in, you seen that? I haven't, no. In, oh in, in the original language? I never knew it was in Japanese. Oh, maybe it isn't then. I don't know. No, yeah. No, it's a, It's a, basically it's a show about if... Um, the premise of it is if the if America lost World War Two, and it's the Nazis and the Japanese are occupying North America. Oh, this is P.K. Dick. It's a P.K. Dick story. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so they're basically in an alternate reality, mm. right? And there's this one uh, Japanese guy, the trade minister, who is able to meditate and travel into our current dimension back in whatever it was, like the 50s or 60s in america and he's being able to go back and forth and visit his family in that dimension and then his life in this dimension and there's this crazy like it's insane it's really mind-blowing but you know it's a lot of like the japanese culture really comes out in that documentary it's fascinating yeah japanese is i i love the culture i love the people um there's something weirdly i would say to, to many people at least um, quite psychedelic about Tokyo. Mm. It's a very strange uh, world. It's very, it seems to me, almost DMT-esque um, in just the lights and the complexity of the city. It's like a fractal city. Um, you can, you know, you see, you walk along the roads, the streets in, in Tokyo, and um, you see all the storefronts and all lit up, and there's there's, there's that big huge like neon lights everywhere you you go into a building and you'll go up uh, the elevator and you'll find yourself in a new little world there's like more stores kind of tucked away within one floor of one building little tiny bars and things hmm. you can never get to the bottom of tokyo you can have three or four lifetimes going to a different shop or different store or different bar or restaurant every day and you, you right. would never get to the bottom of it so th it's very cool it's very small it, uh, you know all the streets are kind of narrow it's very different to florida believe me <laughs> that's <laughs> florida, something I, florida is another dimension yeah, in its yeah, own. yeah yeah it's amazing when i when i come to america and the roads are so fucking wide and it's so broad and it's huge beautiful but very broad and very different landscape in tokyo everything's 
compress. Very dense, right? There's a lot of people there too, huh? A lot of people, a lot of people, but not as um, people imagine that wherever you go in Tokyo, it's it's always going to be, you know, like crushed with people. And in certain pockets like Shibuya or Shinjuku, you're going to see that a lot of the time, like serious crushes, you know, loads of people. Um, but then you can turn a corner and find yourself on an empty street. There's nothing there. You might hear a shutter close. You might hear a cat. You might hear a, see a couple of kids playing or mm. something. Very peaceful, actually. So I live in a my area. It's it's relatively quiet. I can go for a walk for an hour after lunch and hardly see. You see a handful of people. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the so you live street. like on the outskirts or something? In West Tokyo, a place called Kichijoji, which is okay. kind of a hip uh, area. It's, it's within Tokyo, um, but, you know, 20 minutes from Shibuya on the train or Shinjuku, you know. Um, but but Some still. of the imagery I've seen online of like the countrysides of like, mm. like with these mountains and these big lakes and stuff, it just looks incredible yeah you've got everything you've got this you've got the cities obviously but then you you know you can get a train out of tokyo and within an hour you're in a place like nagano this beautiful kind of mountainous region with lakes and alps you know the japanese alps Mm. um so if you like you can do everything relatively simple you know if you like sometimes you want to be in the city and the kind of the hustle and bustle and the excitement there uh, and then you want a weekend out in, in, mm. in the mountains, hiking and stuff. You can do it all. So, yeah, that's kind of why I like. Can you speak Japan. Japanese now? Yeah, fortunately. Really? <laughs> but now, don't get carried away, Danny. Um, it's it's fiendishly difficult to learn. I mean, I've been there eight years now in Japan, and I still I'm still learning. I'm still studying every fucking day, wow. I'm learning words, learning the kanji, the sounds. You know, it's um, it's it's really just the the way they construct sentences is completely alien um, to the way that we construct sentences really? in, in in English. So you have to learn a completely new way of, uh, of of constructing your thoughts and expressing yourself and it's, mm. and sometimes you think of i want to say this and it's like oh how the fuck do i translate that into japanese how yeah. how do you know how and it takes a long time to do that and it's they speak so quickly and it has this certain characteristic mm. sound uh, a lot of the words sound the same sometimes um you can move pieces of the word around and get a new word so unlike in English, so if I take the word television, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, I can't switch that around and say vision telly. That's not a word, right? You never get that confused. But in Japanese, often the words are very, very similar. Um, and you can move pieces. You can rearrange the pieces of the word and you'll get a brand new word. Wow. And so you have to remember um, which way round it is. So there's, you don't get the feel I find of a word in the same way you do in English. You know, if you take the word elephant or something, it, you it kind of it sits in your brain somehow as that word. In Japanese, they're so similar and they can be rearranged. It's hard to develop that that feeling, that sense of the word. So I'm often thinking, is this ryoryu or ryoshu or shoujo? Anyway, can you write in Jap- Japanese too? I can read. I can type in Japanese, Whoa. but writing all of the kanji. And so I know about maybe 
2000 kanji, that what's called the joyo kanji, which is the, the, what you need for basic literacy, where all children, when they leave school, will know these basic kanji, and all official documents use these 2000 kanji, which is, in itself is a lot of kanji. Um, but there are maybe 50,000 of these kanji. So if you're reading, it's weird, right? When you read a novel in Japanese, you will often have above the kanji, so above this Chinese character, uh, another um, few characters that tell you how 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 to how to pronounce that kanji because mm. each kanji right. can have up to you know, some kanji have like ten or fifteen different ways of saying that one kanji. Can you imagine that? So, no, so you look at that. it, you don't know how, you've no idea how it's said. Like that's even more complex than Chinese. In Chinese, you get one mapping, one one kanji, one Chinese character to one sound. Right. In Japanese, you can't do that. So they have kind of. Chinese readings and they have Japanese readings, the onyomi and kunyomi. Mm. So it's 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 such a difficult language, in my opinion. Uh, I never I've never struggled uh, intellectually with something as much <laughs> as I have. You know, I'm I'm not dumb by any stretch of the imagination, but, but ugh, Japanese really. And being able to translate, having to translate all of that and communicate with people in the field that you're in has got to be like compounded level of difficulty. Yeah. I mean, I can't, you know, I couldn't lecture in Japanese, mm -hmm. certainly not on neuroscience and psychedelics. Um, I can, I can converse, I can have conversations with my friends, but sort of, sort of academic level, scientific speaking in, in, in Japanese. Sushi's good there. too. The sushi, of course, sushi's like, I don't eat sushi anywhere else You now. don't? Oh, no, no you are anywhere else. Yeah, they had yeah. it in Palm Springs, just up in Palm Springs. Oh, God, it's like, awful. Eh, eh. Anywhere in California, yeah, yeah, sushi's I'm terrible. Not eating sushi in the middle of the fucking desert. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. It could be dolphin. You know they eat dolphin, a lot of dolphin. I heard they used to feed, uh, they, they used to feed, like, pack the schools with dolphin meat and, like, feed dolphin well, meat in Japan. Uh, yeah, Have you seen okay. the movie The Cove? I've seen that. It's horrible, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... I think Japanese people would be as shocked to hear that um, most Japanese people certainly would not consider eating dolphin at all. Uh, right. Yeah. But I don't think they knew about it. Like they, right. were, they were slaughtering all those dolphins and just trying to find those like diamonds in the rough so they could sell them to SeaWorld. And then they ended up right. with all of this dolphin meat, which is super bad for human beings, mm. like super toxic. I forget what's, what's, I forget what's in it, but there's mercury. A, mercury. Yeah, it's mercury. Yeah. yeah, yeah accumulates. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That that movie was scary. Um, so, what were we, what were we talking about? So you you moved to Okinawa originally. Yeah. When you were how old? Thirty five. Give me age away here. But how old are you now? You look young. Thank you. For, how would you think I am? I would say you're like forty. That's pretty close. We'll leave it there. A <laughs> little bit north. A little bit north. Scotch <laughs> dake. A little bit. So, uh, you, do you think, by the way, do you think you'll, you'll stay in Japan? You want to live there forever? Um, I have no intention of moving back to the UK. I mean, I've, I've built my life there now and I feel at home there. So I'm permanent resident. I have, you know, the right to remain, so to speak, permanently. Right. As long as they don't deport me. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, you transitioned from the, the wet lab stuff into the computational stuff and you yeah. studied like you wanted to get a better, better understanding of the entire human brain and how it relates to different chemistry. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to know, I wanted to be able to understand why, I mean, it's, it's one thing to know that 
DMT or LSD binds to these particular subtype of serotonin receptor, it's another thing to explain how that event going on at this subcellular level uh, is causing these dramatic changes in consciousness. So that making that connection, uh, that being able to form that narrative to a satisfactory extent in my own head, how mm -hmm. that worked, has been uh, something I've been working on for, 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 for a number of years and is the basis of my latest book, Reality Switch Technologies, where I think I've, I've kind of put together, if you like, everything that I've been thinking about and researching and studying over the last decade or so uh, to, to form a, uh, a coherent narrative, how do psychedelics work? That's, that's kind of the aim of what I wanted to, uh, to, to achieve with this. You wanted to find out exactly how psychedelics work. Yeah. And it's, there's, you described this, I believe a little bit in Hamilton's podcast, but correct me if I'm messing this up. But from what I understood is there is a column a cortical column mm. where neurons travel through and basically there's error signals. So like if I'm walking down the street and I see the trees and the road and the cars going by, yeah. there's no error signals. So I don't have to process that. But when you take psychedelics, something fundamentally changes and you start getting all these errors. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good summary. Um, so yeah. So Going back to what I said before, your brain is constructing this model. Um, it's a pattern of neural information. It is these cortical columns. So the cortex is constructed as like a like a 3D mosaic of these co columns, right? Mm -hmm. um, they are cylindrical, and they're all s stacked side by side. So if you imagine looking at your cortex from above, you would see like um, little circles or something like that all packed together. And each column is, is responsible for, is basically it's the fundamental computational unit of the cortex. It's responsible for representing a basic feature of the world. And so, well, you could think of it like pixels in a way. That might be a little bit misleading, but you can imagine you know, an image is formed from lots of pixels. So imagine your entire world is constructed as this mosaic of this, a pattern of cortical column activation, basically. And this pattern of activation is changing all the time as you as you your experience of moving through the world is this constant stream this constant flow of uh, this cortical column uh, pattern of activation does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah um, so what's happening when you take a psychedelic well actually let's go back to you, you mentioned error signals so your brain has this model right it, it's your brain's model is kind of like its best guess, its best hypothesis about mm -hmm. what's going on in the world. Um, so it uses its model. Your brain has this model. It, it's it's working. Um, the brain doesn't know if this model is true, if it's correct. Um, it doesn't care. It has no way of knowing the truth of the model. All it knows is, does this model work? Does this model allow me to predict the flow of sensory information? Right. So the information, sensory information is always entering the brain. The, the brain is trying to make predictions about what's going to happen next. If this model is working, uh, the brain should be able to predict the pattern of information that is coming next. So make this a bit clearer. Imagine you've got a pool ball rolling along a pool table mm -hmm. at a constant speed. 
It's right. So your brain constructs this model of this ball on this pool table, right? And so because the ball is moving at a constant speed, the brain knows that, you know, it has a model of the movement, the trajectory of this pool ball. Your brain knows that, you know, the ball is here in this position now. If the model is correct, you should be able to predict the information coming, sensory information coming from the ball in the next moment. So your brain has this model, it's working. It doesn't need to know actually anything really, it doesn't need to know anything new. There's nothing surprising happening here. Mm. The ball is just moving, yeah? And so when the brain receives that information from the ball that's moving constantly, it says, okay, this model is working. I don't need that sensory information and it extinguishes it. It filters it out, it doesn't need it because so the model is working. So you, does that make sense? Yeah. You're frowning a little bit, but- No, no, I'm just thinking, you're yeah, concentrating. It, it makes sense, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so the brain doesn't se- processing sensory information is expensive. It has to be passed through these neurons, and neurons have to communicate. And there's a lot of energy expenditure in processing information from the outside world. It also disrupts cortical activity. So your brain tries to filter out and not use uh, sensory information as much as it can. Right. Um, as, so as long as the model is working. It, you know, your brain is making these predictions all the time. You don't know it, but your brain is making these predictions all the time. If the prediction is correct, nothing happens. You don't process that sensory information. It's wow. filtered out. But if something surprising happens, the brain didn't predict. It makes a prediction about sensory information. That prediction turns out to be wrong. The pool ball suddenly... Takes a right turn. Takes a right turn, right? That's startling. And right. um, your your brain then it generates this prediction error because there's a there's a disconnect between the prediction and the actual sensory information okay yeah yep this creates an error so if the prediction matches the sensory information there's no error if the prediction is different to the sensory information there's an error there's like the gap the difference between Mm -hmm. them this prediction error is then processed and sent up into the high levels of the cortex and it's used to update the model because the model must be wrong the model's not working anymore. It must be wrong. Uh, and so then these only these error signals need to be used to update the, the, the this working model. Uh, and this is much more efficient than, than trying to absorb all of this sensory information. Most of it, you know, you, you know about anyway. So what is the, what is the error? What does the error look like? The error is just like any uh, anything else, you know, in the cortex is a pattern of information in the form of action potentials. You know, it, it's it's electrochemical signals being passed up through into the cortex. So is it like learning? So like learning would be an error. Yes, I mean, there's there, learning. Well, there are many types of learning, but certainly all the time your your brain is updating its model. I, I prefer to think of it as, as a model update, um, which you could think as learning. But, so if I'm like learning to play chess for the first time, would it just be a ton of errors? Um, or if I'm learning to play any, like do any sport for that I've never done before. And yeah, that's probably a better example. Sport, right. That's probably a better example, yeah. And you're learning, when your brain is faced with a novel situation he hasn't seen before, he doesn't have a very good model of it, mm. then um, you, you're going to get a lot more prediction errors. But as the brain refines its model, those prediction errors start to go down, 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 uh, down, yeah. Okay. A good example, when I was, um, a few years ago, I was in uh, walking through my 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 hometown and in the window of um, one of the department stores right in the window weirdly was a police officer stood there 
what's he doing there? Like literally stood in the window next to the mannequins. Mm. This police officer, yeah? Um, <laughs> uh, but as I walked around, so at that point, let's think what's going on. My brain has seen this sensory information, received this sensory information, and it says, okay, there's a police officer there, and, and there literally was a police officer in my world model. That's the important point. My brain constructed a model of this police officer based upon you know, what it knows about the world. Now, as I walked around, so the brain is then predicting, as I walk around the police officer, uh, I should see, you know, his face going to profile. The brain is predicting what it's going to look like, sensory information it should receive. Right. But what was it? It was a, it was a big photograph, flat photograph of a police officer that had been put in the window. It, was, oh. it, it wasn't actually a real police officer. And so as I'm walking around you, um, where I should see the face coming to profile, that didn't work. There were error signals. The model was failing. Then... My brain said, oh, this, this model is wrong. Uh, and I, I suddenly realized, ah, it's just a photograph. It's just there to kind of discourage you from stealing, I guess. Right. right? Um, so that's kind of how it, your brain is doing that all the time. It's trying to, it, it's building this model of everything in the world and trying to predict what's going on. When, it's only when it fails to make the prediction um, that um, uh, it generates these error signals that, that your brain then uses to update its model. Have you seen the hollow face illusion? No. So the hollow face illusion, people can Google this. Uh, it's very famous. Is it's your cue, Michael. There we go. <laughs> it's like a, um, it's a picture of a mask um, and it um, just a normal mask, three-dimensional. You look at it and it looks like a normal face. You know, the nose is coming out and everything. Oh, yes. I think, right? I've, I think I've seen this. As it rose. So, so what's happening here is your brain has seen this sensor information. It goes, this is a face. The brain knows how to build models of faces. Mm -hmm. So it constructs a model of, there we go. That's it? Yeah. I've seen a different one. I've seen like a statue or something. That, okay. Right? So if, if. Oh, wow. Right. So what's happening here? When your brain sees the mask from the back, it doesn't. It assumes it's a normal face. It doesn't. The brain is not used to constructing kind of hollow reverse images, right? Yeah. Concave faces like that. So your brain constructs a normal three-dimensional face, and you see it exactly as you would a normal three-dimensional face. But as the mask rotates, that the predictions of the model start to fail, right? Yeah. And so your brain then has to update its model. That's when you realize that moment. You realize, oh, it's it's the the concave side of a mask. That's the moment your brain has updated its model. It's changed its model from con uh, convex regular normal face, which is the default, to this alternate, um, this right. alternate model, right? Right. So that's what your brain is doing all the time. It's it, it's it's constantly testing. It's a cycle of model testing. Um, that's the role of sensory information. So you don't actually need, as long as your model is working well, you don't really need much sensory information. And What's interesting about psychedelics is what they do is when they bind to the this subset of serotonin receptors, a receptor called the 5-HT2A receptor, they stimulate these neurons that are important in maintaining the integrity of this world model. Right? So you talk, I spoke about these cortical columns earlier. Well, you right. mentioned them first, right? right. Um, so these, there are certain types of neurons called pyramidal cells, and they are important in... Um, generating these predictions of the model, right? Your, mo your model is constantly making predictions, right. as we said. Um, and in order to make good predictions, 
yeah your model has to be um it has to be coherent it has to be strong it has to be well formed and what psychedelics do is they they stimulate these these pyramidal cells in these cortical columns and they make them more likely to fire they increase their excitability they're more likely to fire they're more likely to share their information with other um, pyramidal cells within other cortical columns so overall this world model that your brain is constructing starts to break down it starts to lose its structural integrity it becomes more fluid more dynamic uh, and so as a result your world of course your sub from your subjective perspective it's your world that starts to change yeah so your world becomes more fluid and more dynamic your brain is 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 um it's shifting from this stable and predictable world to this very unstable and fluid and dynamic now this has interesting consequences because if the model is is starting to lose its integrity the predictions themselves become degraded. So your brain can't make good predictions anymore. So, as a consequence, the error signals increase. If your brain fails in its predictions, there's going to be a greater mismatch between the prediction and the actual sensory information. So error signals go up. Now, we can say that in simpler terms, well, the brain becomes more sensitive to incoming sensory information. Because sensory information is only processed in the form of error signals am i am i making yes, sense yeah? yes uh, and so from your subjective perspective what happens is is the world becomes you know colors become brighter everything becomes richer you're seeing you're literally receiving more information from the environment in the presence of a, uh, a psychedelic molecule like lsd now that is kind of cool in itself right but we can take this one one step further so um so the brain uh, is receiving all of these extra error signals in the presence of this psychedelic. Now, the error signals are used to update the model. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that the brain is receiving all these error signals means the model isn't working anymore, which it isn't. So we need to update the model. And, but no matter how much the brain updates its model, it can't reduce these error signals because the model just is, has lost its kind of its structural integrity. Uh, and so this means that the the as the, mo the brain constantly tries to update its model, from your perspective, the identity of objects changes before the eyes. That's what's happening. So you'll look at something and its identity will change. Yes, you will look at a microphone and it will become a cat or something. Um, or you will look at the pebble driveway. This is described by Alexander Shulgin uh, in his book Pical. He, he looks at this pebble driveway and it becomes this glistening bed of gleaming jewels. Then it turns into a snake, this, the, the back of this huge, beautiful snake. So the so that's kind of that experience, which is quite common with psychedelics, can be explained just by looking at this simple interaction between this molecule and this receptor and working it through to the effect on the model, the effect on the brain's ability to predict, make predictions based upon its model, loss of integrity of the model, failing predictions, increased prediction errors, greater model updates. Mm. So that's kind of that's what I. You know, that's the level of understanding I've been trying to reach uh, uh, over these years, is, is trying to make that connection, this multi-leveled connection between effects on receptors and, ch and why people have these certain subjective effects. Wow. But that doesn't explain DMT, which is 
That does like, not explain DMT. Not quite. Not quite, right? So what you just described, it sounds like right now the brain structure, the way it works, the way these cortical columns interpret the world and basically funnel it to us, mm -hmm. to what we experience, it seems like it's crystallized. Got it. The, like, like am, I, am I kind of like getting this right? It seems like it's crystallized in a certain way. And when you introduce the psychedelics, what it does is sort of like m melts that and makes it more plastic. You got it. That's perfect, right? That's a perfect way of describing it. So it's it's sometimes referred to as a hot state of the cortex. I think of it, imagine like a piece of glass um, that's very, very rigid, very hard. You can't manipulate it, right. right? Heat that glass up and it bends to your will. Right. It becomes hot, of course, uh, and it becomes more fluid, more flexible, and you can bend it. That's mm. kind of the state uh, that your brain is in uh, under the influence of psychedelics. And from that, we can explain um, why psychedelics are useful clinically. Because let's imagine that somebody is deeply depressed. What's going on there? Well, they have certain um, embedded um, neural activation patterns right in their brain the brain is rigid but it's rigid it's producing certain patterns that are negative you know you're ruminating about how fucking awful your life is whether it's worth living and that becomes entrained in a certain sense uh it becomes rigidified mm. uh, and you can't shake it off people say you know can't you just snap out of it no you can't uh because your brain is always to some degree flexible but you can certainly entrain you know these connections in the brain and it becomes over time it becomes it becomes rigidified and you can't shake get out of it so when you take a psychedelic um the whole brain becomes much more smashing fluid. it with a hammer well that's, it, that's right? a bit extreme but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're you are you're heating up you're not literally heating up the brain uh but you are you are you are creating this so-called hot state uh, in which the brain is much more fluid you can you can start to break down these right. rigid rigidified uh, patterns of, of connections and explore novel states you can explore states outside of that um, you can you can uh, you can generate much more positive states more positive patterns of neural activity mm. um, and then as if you come out of the psychedelic state the idea is that it, it, it your brain cools down in a way back into a more positive right. state so that's that right but like for for things like depression right mm. like for psychedelic treatment of depression you don't necessarily know that their experience is going to be positive right so like with some of these with some of these therapies are people sort of guiding their trip or like sort of like pushing them in the right direction to make sure it's positive to make sure they break this depressive loop or are they just taking it and hoping for the taking the psychedelics and hoping for the best well um so normally you you do have it well i mean it's like if you if you heat up a piece of glass you need a skilled glass blower right to get the shape that you want if you're not yes. skilled then you end up with well piece of shit yeah right so it's kind of important um so yeah it's not just i mean people do find benefit sometimes though i can't recommend it um just taking you know a bunch of mushrooms and going on a hilltop and and, and just exploring themselves more deeply and, and being able to access um you know 
normally latent memories or, or things like this, and mm -hmm. that often is very beneficial. Uh, but sure, in a clinical setting, you won't you won't just have the tripper, the, uh, the patient, so to speak, uh, but also somebody who is going to direct direct their, their their thought process, direct their consciousness into more positive places. Yeah, right. for sure. Yeah, that seems like it's got to be something that only comes with experience to where you can do it and kind of like actually take some sort of, like, is that possible? Can you do this? Like get into like a one of these states and actually control it and sort of like become part of it because i know at least in my experience it's always something that like i'm fucking white knuckling the chair yeah, and like yeah, hoping yeah. like god get me out of this but you know for someone who's doing some sort of therapy to cure their depression or ptsd mm. or something like that they're brand new to it and it's going to be terrifying and they're going to yeah. want to take that's a natural instinct is to be like i need to, i've lost control how do i regain control okay so this is so so before I was talking about this, the brain becoming more sensitive to the, the flow of information from outside. Mm. So one way of thinking about this, and this will relate to DMT when we get to that a little bit later, um, is that the brain is more susceptible to, or the cortex is more susceptible because it's in a, it's in this hot fluid state. It's more susceptible to incoming information. Yeah. So the in incoming information, if you like, is helping to, um, reorganize this is what i call informational reorganization the brain right. is much more susceptible to being reorganized uh, by sensory information incoming sensory information now there's also another source of information coming from not from the outside but coming from deeper brain structures so all the time your world is being modulated and informed not just by information from the environment but also memories for example right the way you've seen the world before and how you remember the world before is important uh, for how you're seeing the world now and, mm -hmm. and useful. It's useful to know what a, what a cat looks like. Yeah, you don't have to kind of build the model of the cat separately. It's useful to know if you've um, if you met somebody and the last time you had a they were you know, a total dick to you. Right, and you had a really horrible argument. When you see that person, your instant response is going to be, "Back off! I'm going to avoid this person." Right? It's almost a subconscious yeah. kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because your brain has this memory and it sees that person. And you don't have to think. You, you don't see even, their face. You just see their face. Yeah. Oh, fuck that! I'm out of here. Right? Um, so that is the memory, the memory trace uh, of this individual, and the emotions associated with it are also flowing up. Yes. into your world yeah yeah uh, and that's happening all the time uh, but again that is kept under control you don't want your brain being flooded by memories when you're trying to navigate the world mm -hmm. in, in in the current moment you don't want to be and that's quite difficult sometimes you don't want to be thinking about you know imagine if something you know when something really awful or annoying happens or you 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 said something to somebody that you regret and you're maybe you're driving and you can't stop thinking about it and it's oh God, i wish i hadn't said that and it intrudes you can't fucking concentrate because this memory of what you did it's so emotionally charged it's, it's kind of intruding into your world that can happen so your brain this brain's world model is not only trying to constrain the flow of information from outside it's also trying to constrain 
strain, the information coming from these lower subcortical brain structures and an area called the hippocampus, which is important in memory. So it's stopping the flow of information from memory as well, keeping that down to a trickle, just what your cortex needs mm. to help can, you know, to inform the current model of the world. And what you see in psychedelics, and this has been seen for observed for many decades is that under the influence of high dose lsd for example people get flooded with past memories they really yeah they find themselves reliving experiences that in the past um so you can imagine right and and why is that happening well it's happening because your world model is losing control of the, inf the flow of information from the senses, but also losing control of the flow of information from these lower subcortical structures, including the hippocampus uh, that's, that's responsible for uh, memories, right? And so, so we, we kind of understand why that's happening. Um, and you can also imagine why that might be helpful. If someone had a particularly traumatic experience in their past, which is still, uh, they're, they're not, able to process and make sense of they're kind of they're pushing it down deeper and deeper they're preventing it from making its way uh, into uh, the cortex into mm -hmm. the current experience of the world uh, so they're unable to process it um, what psychedelics can do is allow that kind of release those um what I guess psychoanalysts would call repressed memories, repressed traumatic memories, releasing them up into the cortex so they can be dealt with. But that in itself can be very traumatic. Mm -hmm. So you need, this is why you need someone really experienced with you when you're doing this. So if you, if you suffer from something like post-traumatic stress disorder, you might be repressing memories of the, the, the traumatic experience for very good reason, because they, they can cause massive disruption when they enter the cortex um, and so um, but but they need to be dealt with uh, you need to do like do they like what is the downside of them being just keeping them repressed do, like what is the actual effect of having these these traumatic memories that you just don't even think about anymore yeah I mean just because they're kind of repressed doesn't mean they're not having an effect and then uh, and, and certainly they're always connected to emotion um, and emotion is also central to how we view uh, the world. Um, the way that we emotionally respond uh, to things uh, is, is, is absolutely central. That's the, our value system. Mm. We're constantly judging. When we, when we meet someone, we're constantly judging. How we respond to them depends on how we feel. Mm. Um, uh, always that's happening. And if you, if you have these repressed memories, um, then they can still have some kind of influence um, on, your, on the way you're interacting the world in quite negative ways. Um, right. And so you, you, have to, you have to kind of bring them up uh, and, and, and process them properly and form, um, form more adaptive or more positive uh, constructions and uh, of, the, of, of these kind of models of these and, and memories. So, so it, it it is useful, I think, to um, to do to kind of release these repressed memories. Um, but at the same time, it can be can be dangerous opening these floodgates. Mm. So it should always be done, of course, with someone who's kind of experienced. Wow, you know, when you were talking about having the, these triggers that unlock 
deep buried memories. I remember mm-hmm. that happened to me the other day. I was walking down the street and my one of the neighbors, one of my neighbors had their garage door open and they must have been doing the laundry. Mm. And I got this pungent smell. Not, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good smell, yeah. but it was this smell that I haven't smelled in like 25 years or like 20 years. And it brought me and it put me right back in the last situation I was in where I smelled that smell. And it yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. it was like this girl's house during high school was like like hanging out in her bedroom and i remember specifically being there because that smell was always in her bedroom Mm. and it literally just shot me back into that part of my life and it was so weird and i kept wanting to like go back because like i would forget about it as soon as it went away or i would like have trouble recollecting it again so i'd walk back past it and it would like shoot me right back into that memory it's so strange yeah smell is is it's so evocative i mean i will smell a perfume of like an ex like yes a long time ago like right we're talking maybe 25 years ago when i was with this individual i haven't seen them in you know more than two decades right. and yet when i smell that scent it's like instantly it's associated with that right one person and it always will be yes um it's so weird too because yeah. like i had no idea that memory even still existed in my brain right like it, it's like I think my hard drive's full because all this stuff I do and like I don't have room for any more memories. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like that, the fact that that memory came up from that smell was just mm. mind blowing. Like I didn't even I haven't thought about that smell in uh, over twenty years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, smells do elicit very strong, um, can elicit very strong kind of emotional responses. I mean, this is important, of course, in our. But it's not with like sight or like noises so much. Maybe maybe no. a little bit. No, um, well, s- smell directs to very deep centers in the brain. I mean, you can imagine if you smell like putrefying flesh, the response to that is pretty strong, mm-hmm. right? If you open the refrigerator and you've had some shrimp in there that you've left in there for a month, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like instantaneous and it's recoil. It, it's it's a reflex response here. This is appalling. It's this mm-hmm. this sense of disgust, right? And that's obviously so important in our uh, for us to survive to be able to recognize rotten food because mm-hmm. you, you know if you, if you make a mistake of eating rotten food then you can die right um and the same with positive scent not things that are, that smell nice smell nice you know for for reasons as well you know fruit smells nice right mm. you know these kind of scents so 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 this is why we have this scent is hardwired into deep areas of the brain and, and can elicit emotions. And emotions, of course, are highly connected to memories. Uh, so you can imagine you're, you're, you're setting off, you're triggering this emotional and memory circuitry with, with certain smells. Uh, and that's why when you smell something that was emotionally charged to you right so you're not um you're not getting you don't get this effect if you you went to i don't know something kind of mundane and that was not particularly important to you you know 20 years ago um and you you it's had a characteristic smell when you smell that probably nothing will happen Mm -hmm. you're not gonna go oh my god that smelled like that studio that i went in for five minutes 20 years ago no Mm -hmm. right but if you as i said with like a relationship when there's a there's a strong whether it's positive or negative strong emotional yeah because uh, emotions are important in forming memories right if you get yourself in a bad situation um where you're frightened right let's say you're you're getting you get robbed 
down a particular dark alley somewhere in mm -hmm. I don't know wherever um, that you, at that point your brain knows okay this is something I need to remember if you're scared uh, you need to remember this it's clearly something that uh, right. your brain has to hardwire so that you, if you get yourself in the same situation again uh, that you will you will know how to respond and so often if you you will avoid that dark alley for the, the rest of your life and every time you go down there even if you go down accidentally your brain is going oh no 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 yeah and it's it recognizes the structure of this space uh, and it activates this emotion so sometimes you this when you have this gut feeling I don't like the feel of this. Your brain has made some deep processing that's that's unconscious to you. You mm. don't recognize it. It's not up here. Your brain has made that connection. This is bad. And you get that gut feeling, that feeling in your gut, that emotional response. I need to get out of here. Right? right. That's not an accident. It's not, um, it's not psychic abilities. It's the brain, some deep processing that's gone on here. And if there was a particular smell associated with that as well, that's going to activate this pathway and these emotions that are associated with it. So this is why, you know, smells are, are, are so evocative. It's so fascinating too how rare that happens. And when that does happen, it's so profound too. Like whenever that happens to me, it's like I want to talk about it to everyone. Like, yeah. like have you ever had, have you ever experienced mm -hmm. this? And it's such a rare thing that we, that, you know, modern humans encounter. Exactly. Well, we, we don't rely so much on smell anymore. Um, I guess right. that's why other animals it might be very different to them they would mm. use that 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 circuitry uh, much more than we do but sometimes sometimes when there's a smell that's connected to something quite emotional um, that mm -hmm. memory that circuitry is, is laid down um, right. and, and will remain there for a long time it could be decades so also this is kind of interesting um, when I was when I was young um, just a little kid maybe eight years old i i had two twin brothers not my twins but they were twins younger than me and they they got really sick i used to love i used to fucking love jelly you would call it jello oh right. really yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like seriously i used to whenever i went to my grandma's she would always have a big bowl of jelly that would made my mom would always make jello because it's fucking cheap right it's yeah. cheap but i absolutely loved it and um Anyway, uh, I came home one evening and my little brothers, they had the flu. They were really sick. And I, my mum said, oh, I made this bowl of jelly for you. I went into the kitchen, you know, quaffed down this, this big bowl of jelly. The next morning, I had caught the flu and I became sick, like really sick. I've never eaten jelly since then. Really? Yes. Why is that? <laughs> yeah. Is it the smell? Uh, it's it's simply because your brain associates the emotion. Uh, your brain associates so not just emotion here, but when if you eat a certain type of food and you become sick, your brain makes the connection. This food made me sick. Do not eat this food ever mm. again. Yeah. Yep. Again, this goes deep into our evolutionary history. Very important. If you make a mistake eating bad food, don't do it again. Yep. Yep. I do the so, same thing with, with re when I go to a restaurant and get food poisoning. Right. Same thing. I will uh, never go to that restaurant. There you again. go. I haven't right. been to Burger King since I got food poisoning in like 2016. There you go. There you go. Right. And so sometimes that mistake, is, it's uh, that connection is, is erroneous. That Jello didn't make me ill, mm -hmm. but the brain doesn't know the difference. You know, it's better to have a 
um, a false positive in this sense yes. than a false negative. So yes. I, my, I, I, when I after that, now I can eat it a little bit, but I don't have any desire to eat it. But but since then, when I, certainly throughout my childhood, I, I went from absolutely fucking loving this this, this delicious sweet jelly uh, to being repulsed by it. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's powerful. You know, the emotions and the way that the brain works, there are some really deep, uh, old uh, mechanisms that are designed to keep us, keep us alive. Mm. Uh, and they still uh, function, even though, in this case, it destroyed my love, l- the love of my <laughs> life at the time. It's okay. <laughs> it probably made you healthier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, is it, isn't there um, some... Cor- like, I know the stories of like Jolly West and Sidney Gottlieb and the MK Ultra stuff mm-hmm. and the Charles Manson stuff where they were studying basically how to make people people became more suggestible when they were under the influence of psychedelics mm. and they were able to manipulate them in different mm. ways. Yeah. Use, is this using this same process you're talking about where it kind of like softens the whole world structure of the human brain got it yep exactly so okay. so it's the same presumably anyway that's it, the same process going on you have this highly um manipulatable if i can if, mm-hmm. if there's such a word uh brain in many ways uh, and it and it could be information driven reorganization you know sensory information from the environment but it could also be ideas 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 um, that's that's going into the brain, and and they can reorganize, if you like, um, neural activity. So the brain becomes globally or more broadly uh, susceptible um, to inputs. Mm. Um, so that would explain that. Yeah. So there's that mm. there's that story that from what I think Jolly West was involved with it with the elephant. Are you familiar with that one? No. Tell me, Jolly. You'd have to look it up. Find out. Look up uh, Jolly West. Uh, he killed an elephant with LSD. I think he like gave the, an, an elephant an enormous amount of LSD, and something happened. And well, he did all these experiments, but this one was like he was like proud of this one. Mm-hmm. I read about it in um, I read about it in Tom O'Neill's book Chaos, where he basically. Are you familiar with that book? No. Tom O'Neill. He was an investigative reporter who was just he was tasked to write an article for, I think it was the 20th anniversary of the Manson murders. And um, it ended up being like a 20 year story he did. Mm -hmm. And he basically like got sued by the publications that he was hired by. And when he refused to stop reporting on it because he just kept finding all these holes in the case, these gaping holes. And he eventually got connected to this clinic in Haight-Ashbury where it was a CIA funded clinic where they were giving people LSD and amphetamines. Mm. And there was this these research papers where these two guys were doing LSD, giving these hippies LSD and giving them amphetamines and like studying all the different stuff. And, and Jolly West was connected to this clinic. And Jolly West was the guy who did that experiment on the, there it is, the LSD related death of the elephant. Um, oh. One of the more unusual incidents in West's career took place in August, 1962. He and two coworkers attempted to investigate the phenomenon of, what does that say? Muscle and elephants. I can't read it. Museth and elephants by doing, by doing Tusco. 
a bull elephant at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Oklahoma City with LSD. They expected that the drug would trigger a state of similar... What is that word, Michael? Must. Must? Must. M-U-S-T-H. Instead, the animal began to have seizures for five minutes after the LSD was administered, beginning 20 minutes later. Uh, West and his colleagues administered the... Antipsychotic pro promazine hydrochloride. They injected a total of twenty eight hundred milligrams over eleven minutes. The large promazine dose was not effective and may have contributed to the animal's death. It died an hour and forty minutes after the LSD was given. But yes, yeah, so he's in being interviewed by by um, Tom in his book for about Charles Manson, and he's like bragging about how he killed that elephant with LSD, and wow. he was just fascinated by like he would go live in dormitories with students, and like be like giving them like they would all be doing LSD and think they're a part of this crazy new movement. And it was during the, like in the yeah, yeah, in the sixties. He was a wild, wild character, but I don't know where I was going with that, but like suggestibility. Yeah. Yeah. The suggestibility mm. part of it with like Manson and his followers and them like, like he was this just wild charismatic guy who knew how to talk. And, you know, when you give and he was giving the, his followers LSD and he wasn't necessarily taking it himself. Mm. And, um, you know, that's just it's wild. The what can be done to the human mind in that kind of setting sure i mean with with lsd even if you take it on your own you can you can have some kind of rather wild ideas and thought processes that that often seem quite profound at the time when you kind of come back to a more uh, focused rational state you realize actually that was not as profound as I imagined it was. You, know, you, right. you, you regain some insight, if you okay. like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you have someone reinforcing this when you're in a psychedelic state, uh, whatever message they want to imprint in you, mm. uh, I imagine this can be uh, quite effective as a tool of so-called mind control. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And what about, I'm curious too, because they were doing amphetamine studies. Do you Are you familiar with what amphetamines do to the brain? Uh, yeah, I mean... So this might have been the same study. I mean, Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the, the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Um, he was also given, he was in a medical trial that was probably around the same time. And he was given a mixture. He was given LSD and he was also given um, alpha-methyltryptamine, uh, which was called IT290 at the time. It was described as a super amphetamine, but wasn't actually a an amphetamine. super amphetamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't actually an amphetamine. It's a different kind of molecule. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, amphetamines, um, they they work completely differently to the psychedelics. They, they release um, noradrenaline and dopamine, um, particularly um, uh, into certain areas of the cortex. So they... Um, so you have these, um, so when dopamine is released, uh, it's kind of taken back up, it's kind of vacuumed back up into the neuron. It's released from the neuron and then vacuumed back up through these special transporters that kind of terminates its action, um, which basically allows the brain to kind of control the levels of, of dopamine that are active. What amphetamine does is it, it switches these channels, uh, these 
pumps, if you like, uh, back into reverse. So they start pumping dopamine out of the neurons. So it floods the brain with dopamine. Um, and that makes you feel fucking good, mm. you know? Uh, it, the noradrenaline has this neurostimulatory effect. It's the same effect with, uh, on neuroadrenaline as well. Mm-hmm. It causes this neurostimulatory effect. The dopamine causes euphoria. So you can imagine, right, if you have this combination, I'm kind of semi-speculating here, but if you've got a combination of uh, amphetamines that are making you feel good, this um, LSD, which is loosening up and making your brain more suggestible. Yeah, you're receiving these messages. You're feeling fucking great. It's telling your brain this is this is a um, this message is is fantastic. Mm. Like you, 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 like you've just uh, found the most delicious food or something, right? Right. You know this this flood of dopamine. You're feeling great. Um, so you can imagine where you would get this association, perhaps between this message which is becoming imprinted in the brain and this this sense of euphoria and elation uh, and stimulation. It's like, oh my God, this is it. This is the message. This is God speaking to me. Um, you know, you can wow. imagine that kind of happening. Uh, Holy with, shit. You know, yeah, so that might explain it. That's what uh, uh, Hamilton described on his podcast with you. He basically, he described a situation where he was going to a shoot and he had to take an Adderall basically because he was flying across the world. And then uh, he took to like help himself go to sleep, took some sort of psychedelic, I forget what it was. Gaboxadol. 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 And he said he had the craziest trip of his life. Yeah. So that's not a psychedelic. It shouldn't have a psychedelic. It's a completely different uh, mechanism. It works by completely different receptors. But in high doses, apparently, and it was news to me at the time, it can have quite profound psychedelic effects. So there are a number of ways, actually, you're, you can reach these different types of psychedelic effects in the brain. It doesn't have to be stimulation of these 5-HT2A receptors. You have uh, molecules like salvinorin from salvia divinorum. They also can have effects that are you know, reality tearing effects that can really take you to another fucking world but they work completely differently i mean it's this kind of remarkable molecule this salvinorin that's isolated from this single plant this what was a very rare plant in the wild that grows in these cloud forests in southern mexico um uh, the only plant of its kind that produces these um, the only plant in the world that produces these, this particular molecule that looks nothing like the classic psychedelics and has a completely different mechanism that nobody predicted. And yet, when it, uh, its discoverer, um, Daniel Siebert, so this sal- salvia divinorum has been used um, traditionally for a long time. And normally it's, um, there are a number of ways to consume it, but often you would take the leaves, you would um, roll them into a cigar and just, chew them gradually over a number of you know you know quite a long time mm-hmm. and this salvinorin molecule is absorbed into your bloodstream and it generates this psychedelic effect uh, but we didn't know uh, until uh, i think it was the early 90s what the kind of the psychedelic component was of this molecule and daniel siebert who's kind of a salvia aficionado uh, he's the man when it comes to psychedelics. He uh, made this extract of salvia divinorum, a very pure extract, it turns out. He didn't know this at the time, but it was like 80% pure salvinorin. And he smoked just a small amount, What again, a, a couple of milligrams, what seemed to be a small amount. 
uh, and he was instantaneously catapulted. He was taken out of his body. He found himself in these impossibly strange worlds. He was his reality was 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 torn apart, obliterated in a second. It, it was a horrifying experience for him, but he he developed, you know, he discovered the psychedelic essence of Salvia Divinorum. So in many ways, he was elated. What else did he say about that world? Um, well, he describes it. You can find it on the internet. I forget the details, but um, he. So the thing about Salvia is or salvia salvinorum particularly the isolated molecule uh is that it's it's very different to dmt it takes you to like dmt uh, in high doses it takes you to incredibly strange worlds with a very strange kind of geometry populated world filled with intelligent beings often more malevolent uh, there seems to be a greater propensity for negative experiences with salvia. Most people don't like it. Most people who do purified um, salvinorin never repeat their experience. Some do. Um, some proper kind of psychonaut head cases. Mm. They, they really kind of get into it. Um, but he found himself being... Um, propelled through many different types of worlds, you know, um, over about 15 minutes, you know, impo impossibly bizarre uh, worlds uh, until finally he kind of came back. But what's kind of, I think, quite frightening about deep Salvinorian states is what I call existential absoluteness. Once you're in that space, that space is all that's ever existed. Um, you, any memory, any connection to your humanness in this world is gone. It's it's completely gone. You've no memory of it. You've no memory of ever taking a drug. N nothing has been brought with you. Uh, you. You're in this space and you've always been in this space and you will always be in this space. Uh, and to me, that thought is horrifying. Not having a thread back to reality, back to, or should I say, well, not having a threat to uh, the normal waking world and your, your existence prior and just finding yourself in this, this existentially absolute space that is not necessarily a, a nice space. It's not like going to heaven, right? What would you say is happening in the brain there? Um, okay, so... So there's a, a deep part of the cortex. So this, the classic psychedelics, they work uh, the cortex. I spoke about these pyramidal cells, right? So it's stimulating these pyramidal cells, which are in the cortex, the deeper layers of the cortex. Now, underneath the cortex, you have this uh, very important but relatively small part of the brain called the colostrum. And the colostrum is, well... It's like the milk that, that mothers produce. Yes, but completely different. <laughs> Same word. <laughs> Same word, <laughs> but completely different. And the colostrum is, well, we don't fully understand the colostrum. And the, the, you, you, there are still like conferences devoted to understanding the colostrum. Really? And that's that, yeah. We've known about it for a long time, but we, we don't really understand it completely. But it seems to be a, um, an orchestrator of cortical function. It's a global inhibitor. It keeps your... Um, the, the construction of your world model, it keeps neural activity constrained. It's constantly sending out inhibitory signal, keeping the brain under control. 
That's what it's doing all the time. It's like the conductor of an orchestra, yes, who is, it's telling, you know, a conductor of an orchestra, it's controlling which instruments are sounding, which ones should be quiet, which ones need to be, you know, uh, louder. It's, it's controlling the flow of the music from moment to moment. Now, imagine the claustrum doing that in your brain, uh, but with your world model being constructed by your cortex. It's telling which parts of the brain need to be quiet, which ones need to become activated and then quieting them down so other parts can become active. It's constantly maintaining this control over the flow of cortical states from moment to moment, yeah? Now, what happens when you consume salvanorin? Well, salvanorin binds to a type of receptor called the kappa opioid receptor. It's the same family of receptors that morphine binds to right? Uh, but completely different. Now, these kappa opioid receptors, they inhibit the neurons in which they're embedded. When you activate a kappa opioid receptor, it basically shuts down that neuron. And there are lots of these kappa opioid receptors in the colostrum. So when you take uh, salvanorin, it binds strongly to these kappa opioid receptors and it shuts down the colostrum. So it's like shooting the conductor of the orchestra in the head. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the orchestra just goes kind of wild, doesn't know what to do. Right. And so your brain is like a release mechanism, whereas the classic psychedelics are stimulating the brain directly. Yeah. Stimulating the cortex by binding to these 5-HT2A receptors. Salvanorin is, in, is shutting down the orchestra, uh, the conductor, uh, and it's, it's, it's employing this release mechanism. It releases the cortex from uh, clostral control from control of the by the clostrum and and this is why you get these wild uh, in patterns of emergent activity that's so, why there's no string back to our current reality there you go that well that could be it i mean we don't really understand why it has certain qualities but that's kind of a broad explanation of why um the, the salvia why from your subjective perspective why you you your your world model is completely disrupted and, and completely novel patterns of cortical activity begin to emerge. And that is experienced by you as this uh, a complete shift in your world model. Everything breaks apart and brand new patterns of neural activity start to uh, emerge. Uh, and this is experienced as this re reality tearing, world shifting effect. Very dramatic. Wow. Mm. Has anybody ever used psychedelics or any of these other drugs to like we talked a little bit ago about like how you can reconstruct somebody's view, like somebody's loop that they're stuck in, like with depression or, yeah. or reliving suppressed traumatic memories and sort of break them out of out of it. But like it seems like this is all very much connected to plasticity like neuroplasticity has anyone ever utilized any of this stuff to like learn new things like to for example learning japanese for mm -hmm. the first time could you essentially sort of like loosen up those cortical columns and those yeah. neurons and introduce something new or like a new way of looking at the world yeah. and then let kind of relearn or retrain your mind in some way yeah yeah i mean certainly the way that we view the world and is can sometimes impede you know the rigidity this uh, the kind of 
the kind of these very strict and rigid models that we've constructed and ways of thinking about things, ways of approaching problems. Yes, mm -hmm. this is this can become quite embedded and quite rigid. And, and in a sense, that's kind of a good thing. You want to be able to approach a problem that's worked in the past, for example, uh, in a specific way. And that, you know, 95 percent of the time or whatever, that's going to work for you. But what happens when you're faced with a problem that you can't solve? Right. Um, and it's like, well, what do I do now? And it's very difficult to get out of that rigid way of approaching something. And so if you take a psychedelic, it loosens that up. It allows your brain to explore more possibilities um, and perhaps arrive at a novel solution uh, to the problem. Um, and that's why I think psychedelics are so useful for um, creativity. We get in our own way. We get in our own way, I think, a lot of the time uh, when we're trying to, particularly if you're a musician, for example, you find yourself, I'm not a musician, uh, but I guess you, you find yourself going through the same chord progressions or you, you can't let yourself go. And I was speaking, actually, coincidentally, to a, on the way to the airport uh, in Palm Springs, uh, a musician who uses low doses of, of psilocybin, just like a, a gram. Not a super psychedelic. Graham's a pretty good amount. <laughs> well, maybe for me, <laughs> maybe for you. But it's 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 he still has um, he's still kind of compass mentis, right? He can still have conversations. He can still think. Uh, but everything's loosened up a little bit, mm. and it allows him to um, to become much more free in the music that he's making. Uh, you know, he can think of new ideas much wow. easier. He's, he's he, he he gets out of his own way. Um, because there is the brain is capable of exploring novel routes, uh, it gets out of these kind of these uh, these embedded rigid routes that your brain has kind of established over time uh, and, and into novel areas. So you can imagine it being useful for art or even like architecture. There are stories of architects going into mm. a room, taking a right 50 micrograms of lsd and spending time with a problem and coming mm. out with interesting solutions francis crick who discovered um the structure of the dna molecule uh, yeah. reported much later on uh, that he was using lsd at the time and that he had a vision of this um, double helical structure um, and that was you know probably the most certainly one of the most important uh, scientific discoveries of the last century wow. no doubt about it and so you know you might find that that lsd and carrie mullis who invented the pcr reaction yeah he also was a user of lsd and he said actually that if it wasn't for lsd he wouldn't have invented the pcr reaction so psychedelics can certainly be useful in in bringing creativity to what are otherwise quite rigid and strict uh, disciplines such as science or, or mathematics or things like this are you familiar with john mack his studies oh yeah and his interviews with people yeah. and, and talking to people who had encounters like with beings and yeah. ufos so Carrie Mullis described a lot of these weird encounters with like like paranormal encounters where he would like have like he, there was one specific where he walked out into the woods and encountered some dark like evil entity and he, the next thing he knew he woke up in his bed and it was the next day like he had a lot of these mm. weird experiences. Yeah, I think um so yeah, I mean Certainly with, with, with psychedelics, because you're, I mean, 
we obviously we're getting to really really speculative territory now. Yeah. Um, when we kind of start to think about the connections between um, the work that John Mack did with abductees uh, and the experiences of people who take DMT, um, some people would say, "Well, there's no relationship here." Um, but even John Mack, towards the end of his life, um, which was tragically cut short, he was hit by a car in in London, right? Right. Yeah, he looked Looking the, the wrong, wrong way. way. That's what James Fox said, yeah. Um, so John Mack, towards the end of his life, he started to think that these, first of all, he, he, he you know, he, he was a very eminent psychiatrist. That's, this. he was not a kook uh, by any stretch of the imagination. By, by all of his analyses, these individuals reporting being abducted were not insane. They weren't crazy people. They had these experiences. Um, now, the question is, is, what was going on? Were they being physically lifted from their beds and carried into ships waiting in the front garden? Or was something stranger going on? And I think um, John Mack began to believe from, from reading his writings um, that there was something else going on, something... Um, beyond the physical. There was some interaction between these beings, wherever they are, uh, and the, the individual, the abductees' minds, uh, and that perhaps they weren't being physically taken uh, from their beds, but actually they were manipulating the neurochemistry in some way, perhaps, of these individuals. So, like, these beings, these gray aliens, could be similar to the elves people see on DMT? It's possible, yeah. Um, we, we we just we just don't know, but I think there's a much closer relationship to the uh, well UFO experiences, but that's much broader now. UFO experiences, uh, alien experiences, alien abduction experiences, and DMT than um, many people have considered. Interestingly, I was just up in, as I said, at Palm Springs just over the last couple of days, and I was. Uh, I met, so do you know J. Allen Hynek? Of course. Of course, yeah. So he came up with the Close Encounters classification yeah. system. So um, I met his son, Paul Hynek, who's a really great guy. And uh, we became friends kind of instantly. And um, he'd heard about my work. And I was very pleasantly surprised uh, that there were so many people, including Paul, who who no longer consider the alien phenomenon to be restricted to um, wet-brained physical beings coming from other planets, but that there is some other, shall we say, uh, other dimensional or trans-dimensional or choose your word. We don't really know where these beings might be coming from or the relationship between their reality and our reality, but it seems to be something non uh, non-physical and he's become very very interested in, in dmt uh, because it does it reliably grants access to what is often described as a hyper technological domain filled with extremely intelligent beings exactly the kind of beings we might imagine as being uh, far more advanced uh, intelligences you know far more advanced alien intelligences what would that look like um now, okay, so this 
takes a little bit of, of getting to. Now, we, we could just kind of accept that and say, oh, maybe, maybe uh, people seeing aliens, maybe there is this relationship between alien intelligence uh, that other people have been describing in the kind of UFO phenomenon community and the DMT experience. But to me, that's not satisfactory. I want to know why that relationship might exist, right? Why should there be this connection here? And so I go back to um, thinking about the progression of advancement of civilizations, right? So let's take our civilization. We are we are humans with these, as I said, wet-brained, physical carbon and water-based creatures um, that exist on this earth, mm -hmm. obviously. And so far, uh, for most people, when they think about aliens, they think about other wet-brained carbon or something-based beings that exist like us on a different planet. You know, it, it's pretty naive in a way to think like that, but that's how we have imagined it for a long time uh, because that's all we know. That's all we know what intelligence looks like. It looks like us or it looks similar to us. It's, it's physical. It's based mm -hmm. in this universe. But actually, I think that is a grave uh, error that we're making here uh, for a number of reasons. And this isn't a kind of a fringe or cranky wooey position that I'm, I'm taking here. Uh, it's, it's, and many physicists and astrobiologists uh, and philosophers have thought about this. If we're looking for life, other intelligence elsewhere, i.e. not on Earth, what, how, what's the best way to look for it? What's the best way to kind of make contact with this intelligence? And so far, we've been firing electromagnetic pulses into the sky in the hope that we'll get some binary missive in 25,000 years or something from some other distant star system. Um, but that's kind of a stupid idea. Terence McKenna, what did he say? Uh, to search expectantly for a, a radio signal from a distant civilization is, is as culture-bound a presumption as the search of the galaxy for a good Italian restaurant, right? It's a great line, that right? Great. You know, it, we're, we're so limited in our thinking, the idea that these aliens, these advanced intelligences uh, would be using radio signals. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's even worse than that because if we think about the progression of intelligent civilization, you have a number of phases. You, to me, I, I break it up into three phases. We have what I call the pre-technological phase. So this is us, you know, more than a hundred or so years ago, where we, we weren't thinking of, uh, in a really intelligent way at least, um, about communicating with the with that, you know, other intelligences in the cosmos. We weren't doing it. We didn't, we didn't have the ability to do it. Um, we couldn't even send radio signals, right? So we can kind of forget about those civilizations, you know, other civilizations at that level of advancement. There's no way we could communicate with them without physically going to their planet and finding them um, because they, they don't have the technology either. Right. Then we have us. We are in this technological phase. We can conceive of other intelligences elsewhere. We can conceive of how we might communicate with them. We can even think about um, how we might ultimately leave planet Earth, how we might even transcend our biology. Even that is uh, something that's, that's strongly considered now to become a form of um, artificial intelligence, you know, the idea of uploading us, mm -hmm. uh, our consciousness or something into some computational structure, right? Um, that's already an idea. And a 
according to people like you know, physicist Paul Davis, philosopher Susan Schneider have been writing about this. It's their contention that once a civilization reaches the level of advancement where they can conceive of transcending their biology, becoming post-biological, they're probably only a few hundred years from doing so, right? So really? we'd no longer be physical intelligences using um, uh, using a physical wet brain and body uh, to kind of instantiate our civilization, we would become post-biological. Uh, and so that means, right, that if you think about all the intelligences elsewhere in the cosmos, the number of intelligences that are within our technological phase, uh, it's a very narrow temporal window, right? Just maybe a few hundred years. Once an intelligence reaches the technological phase, they're probably only a few hundred years from transcending their biology entirely. Yeah, becoming post-biological. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about what I mean by post-biological. Yeah. Um, but uh, what that would mean is that they would be completely transparent to any mode of communication we have. You know, beyond that, we couldn't even conceive of an intelligence that has become post-biological um, at all. And so. Focusing our t attention on um, technological be or beings that are sufficiently technologically advanced but still uh, in physical, wet-brained, carbon-based forms is restricting uh, the search to probably, I don't want to give a number, but a very small proportion of the intelligence in the cosmos. The vast, uh, the vast amount, uh, the vast majority of uh, intelligence in the cosmos is likely to be post-biological and completely transparent to any mode of communication. Um, so what does post-biological mean? Um, so there are a number of ways of thinking about the advancement of uh, a civilization, an intelligent civilization like ours. So Kardashev, the Kardashev scale, have you heard of this? No. The Kardashev scale is, is a way of looking at the, uh, the progression of advancement of a civilization based upon how they, they harvest energy. So you have like type one, type two, type three Kardashev right. civilizations. I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah, right. So you have a type one uh, Kardashev civilization, which I think can, can control all of the energy of their their home, their host planet, their home right. planet, right? So we're kind of before them. We're like a type zero. We're type zero, right? Yeah, we're not even there yet. Then you can think of an intelligence that can control the energy of the nearest star in the, you know, in their solar system, right? Mm -hmm. That would be a type two. Mm -hmm. We're certainly not there. And you can expand that to uh, intelligence that can control the energy of the entire galaxy. And you can keep going further and further outwards to a larger and larger scales, yes? Then you can imagine a civilization that can control and manipulate entire galaxies, entire universes. Um, you know, you can imagine at higher and higher end, this Kardashev scale has been kind of extrapolated mm -hmm. quite a bit, but imagine a civilization that can control entire universes, perhaps even entire multiverses, able to actually create and destroy universes at will. We have no idea what an intelligence like that would look like, right? Uh, but this is how you progress in one direction, in one direction. But actually... If you really think about how human civilization is progressing, we're not so much thinking about 
moving more and more outwards. Few, yeah, okay, there's some talk about populating Mars or whatever. But actually, most of our effort is directed not at larger and larger scales, but at smaller and smaller scales. Mm. Yeah. So think of the Large Hadron or Hadron Collider. Yeah. We're more and more interested in nanoscale and even smaller than that, manipulating um, uh, much lower scales of reality. We're interested in you know, chemistry. What is that? Manipulating molecules. Um, then down to atoms, manipulating subatomic particles or the, 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 the interactions between sub, sub, subatomic particles. That's something we also kind of do just to a certain extent. Uh, but you can imagine going deeper and deeper and deeper. That tends to be actually the progression of, of an intelligent civilization. It tends to be um, deeper and deeper to the ground of reality. That's where we're trying to get. That's what the Large Hadron Collider is about. It's about understanding the fundamental structure of our reality. And you can, if you imagine this deeper and deeper and deeper, ultimately you will get to the ground of reality, whatever that is. Once you develop an understanding of that, when we're far from there, I would say, when you think about then, well, what do we do with that? How do we... How do we become a post-biological civilization? I don't think what you're going to do is kind of run, you know, people might imagine like stacks of servers stacked on the nearest moon kind of running this civilization computationally. Again, this is very human-centric way mm -hmm. of thinking about it, right? It's not going to be like that. It's more likely to be that the the, the civilization, intelligence, will 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 instantiate themselves at the lowest level of reality, um, exploiting the fundamental computational structure of reality. That's where they're going. They're going deep down. They're not getting expanding to larger and larger scales. They're going deep down to the fundamental ground of reality. That's where they've kind of they've left left uh, this scale of reality, uh, and they're deep, deep down, and they are practically invisible. And we've no idea, no fucking idea. It's completely impossible for us to comprehend or to conceive what an intelligence like that would look like. Uh, John Barrow, the cosmologist, invented a term for this he called it the micro-dimensional mastery scale okay very mainstream famous uh cosmologist and theoretical physicist so the the micro-dimensional mastery scale is that opposite to the kardashev it's, it's it's looking at the development of the civilization down down deeper and down 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 deeper and down <laughs> yeah who was that um status quo down down deeper and down yeah anyway um so yeah down down deeper and down and um you get to these, so it starts at type 1 minus, so it's opposite the Kardashev, type 1 minus, type 2, type, type two minus. Okay. And he envisioned this civilization he called the type omega minus, right? So they, they, have, they have got right down to the fundamental ground of reality, and they are instantiating themselves right down there. That's where they are. We have, there's no way we would know how to communicate with them. Uh, we have no idea what they would look like. We have no idea what kind of worlds they construct for themselves. We have not, know nothing about them. But, but if that is our kind of destiny in a, in a sense, and, it's, and if that's the destiny of all successful intelligent civilizations is to achieve that, then the vast majority of intelligences within our universe are likely to be something like that. The vast, imagine that, imagine that. The vast majority of intelligences, and it might be like 99.9% .9 or something, we just don't know, right. would be would be 
inconceivably strange we <clears throat> can't imagine and there they would in a sense be everywhere um but nowhere at the same time um and then you think wait a minute wait a minute if that's true if that's true what's happening when you smoke dmt well you're entering this hyperdimensional world filled with these super intelligent uh, beings in this highly complex constructed inorganic space is there a possibility that we are somehow interacting with um, this type omega minus civilization? Is that what's going on here? Um, that's the question for me, because I, I think to myself, how would we communicate with something, an intelligence like this? Well, right. you know, we can't send out radio signals. Um, it seems like we can't do anything. But then I thought, well, the most obvious way for them to communicate with us, if they chose to, would be using our brains. Because, why? Because right. the brain, it can receive information directly, and it can use that information to construct a world. And so you can imagine us being able to, if information could, if the flow of information could be gated from this other domain that sits at the ground of our reality that's everywhere right now, uh, our brain could begin to construct a model of that reality. It would allow us to literally enter their world, experience their world, for, allowed our brain to construct a model of their world. Um, so that's where I'm leaning towards. If we take these intelligences seriously that people meet in the DMT space, it seems to me it, it would be something like that, a world that is uh, has a very close, for us, un Un, uncom incomprehensible and ununderstandable relationship to our reality. That is where I think you might be finding. Uh, that's why I think um, DMT might uh, grant access to this domain. Quantum computers could per perhaps help us to communicate with beings that are that are operating on on atoms, right? That's possible, but again, we're talking probably several layers lower than atoms. Than atoms, right? We don't really know. I mean, we call them certain things, you know, particles, fundamental particles, mm -hmm. but I th I, that's just that's as fundamental as we can kind of grok, right. as fundamental as we know. But actually, it could be many levels bef below that. We, we just don't understand the fundamental structure of reality. Uh, so there's the problem. There's the problem. We don't understand how these other realities or our relationship to this, these other post-biological domains where these type omega minus civilizations might reside. And, and so when, okay, so going back to what I said before, right, the DMT or other psychedelics, um, when they enter the brain, they create this hot state, yeah? This mm -hmm. very fluid state where the brain is much more susceptible to incoming information yeah mm -hmm. um to be information driven reorganization so that would be precisely the state in which the brain would be susceptible to receiving information somehow um and i think it would be at the lowest level of reality this information is coming in somehow into our brain i don't think it's coming through the norm it's not coming through the normal senses mm -hmm. certainly uh, the brain is this information is entering the brain and and reorganizing. I, I always say uh, you don't break through into the DMT world. The DMT world breaks through into you. It is taking right. control of your world building machinery and using your world building machinery machinery to construct its world. You're not right. going anywhere. You don't need to go anywhere. All that needs to happen is 
information must flow into your brain from their domain mm. and your brain which is a world building machine as i said will construct a model of their world do you think people like alan hynek and kerry mollis ha could have the ability do you think there's certain people like them who could have the ability to tap into this without psychedelics possibly yeah I, i'm not saying necessarily i mean dmt seems to be the most efficient it seems mm. to cause um unlike the other psychedelics which which create this as i said this fluid hot state of the brain with dmt it seems to go past this it transcends this state and you get this sudden re reorganization uh, of the emergent patterns of activity in the cortex uh, and this seems to be for reasons we don't understand um, makes the brain even more susceptible to information driven reorganization if that's what's actually happened right of course this is speculative right. i'm not right. saying yes you know when you take dmt you're communicating with advanced post-biological civilizations instantiated in the ground of reality i'm not saying that's true but i'm trying to find the connection yeah. there if we do take these um if we do take these entities seriously and i think we need to i don't think it's simple to explain their uh, presence within the dmt state i don't think it's it's simple uh, i don't think it's easy to simply explain them away as hallucinations or as archetypal structures from the collective unconscious there seems to be something much more profound going on here these beings they are they have clear intent when you go into the space they're waiting for you they get to work right um they get to work on you they they're expecting you uh they welcome you uh and they they have an agenda they have an agenda um and it seems to be far more uh, than your brain just making it up your brain doesn't really mm -hmm. in my opinion at least um doesn't seem to have this ability to model these hyper complex hyper dimensional realities filled with these beings that bear no relationship to anything in in our world so mm. i think that 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 we need to actually take seriously and i i say this as somebody who is something of a sober neuroscientist i don't just i'm not one of these people who says oh it's the spirit world or it's the astral plane i always avoid that because there's no explanation there for me if you say are you going to the astral plane i mean well what's the connection there how does that work what's the mechanics so i'm looking for some kind of coherent explanation for what's going on and i haven't found it in um the the orthodox paradigm of modern neuroscience at all I, you know i've read the the interpretations i've read the explanations of the dmt state it's hallucination mm. Mm, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, these are these are far too complex. They're far too coherent for, mm -hmm. uh, to just be made up by the brain. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that we can explain it in terms of archetypal structures as well. Um, I think there's something completely non-human going on that has no relationship to either modern or ancestral humans. There's nothing in our evolutionary past, our historical past, uh, that can explain why people are seeing these types of non-human, extremely advanced intelligences. So I think we have to start at least entertaining the idea that there's something far, far stranger going on. Mm. It's fascinating also that Heineck and Mullis 
and Jack Parsons, like the father of rocket science. The Jack Parsons is like one of the most, I think um, Warner Von Braun attributed a lot of his discoveries to Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was hanging out with Aleister Crowley and L. Ron Hubbard. There you go. And there's like this deep, and Alan Hynek was this ex- obsessed with, what is the, I, I don't, I never know how to pronounce it. Esoteric, esoteric. Well, I would say, oh, how? What would I say? What would you say? Esoteric. I, I've said esoteric before, but I think it's esoteric. So esoteric or esoteric or esoteric. Esoteric depends. Like tomato, tomato. Right. Okay. I say tomato. You say tomato. Right. Okay. I say potato. You say potato. No, I don't say potato. Everyone said potato. But um. But yeah. But yeah, he was obsessed with the the esoteric stuff and even um jacques valet when when diana went into his apartment in san francisco mm. she said he had a library full of these esoteric texts and these texts on an- and these books on angels and demons and he had this book that he gave her all about the history of satan and he said you need to understand this book yeah valet was very interesting and i i, I was actually um uh, paul heineck uh, quoted from Valet or, or something uh, paraphrased from him. And Valet said that if this phenomenon turns out to just be extraterrestrials from another planet, he would find that incredibly disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be something far, far more than that, that we just we just don't have the the cognitive toolkit, I think, to actually grasp uh, what's going on here, uh, what these civilizations are, what they look like, what is their relationship mm-hmm. between our world. We don't even know what our fucking reality is, is really right. built from. So the idea that we, we, we have a, a, you know, a, a kind of a full grasp on other worlds or whatever. I mean, the idea of other worlds or parallel universes or other dimensions, that's pretty standard you know, cosmology or pretty standard theoretical physics. No one would rule that out, that there are other realities or whatever uh, that might even be populated. Um, what the, Where you get into trouble, I think, with, with physics is, is, is making the claim that there is a possibility that there could be some interaction between those worlds and our worlds. Um, but I've, I've always said, mm, I don't agree with that because we don't understand the we don't even understand our reality so the idea that we we understand what is or isn't possible in terms of interactions between our reality and some other reality we we, we haven't got that information so if we do you know if you do meet beings um, that are apparently extremely intelligent and just, you know clearly quite aware of the fact that they're extremely intelligent extremely advanced you have to think well maybe they are who they say they are we don't understand how we are establishing communication with them. Why, when you perturb the brain with this simple plant alkaloid, it allows us, it grants access to their domain. It gates the flow of information from their domain into our brain. We don't understand that. I will admit that. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It doesn't mean we can rule it out and say that's not that's not a reasonable, feasible explanation because it could be, yet we just don't understand that deep connection uh, that deep relationship between our reality and, and their reality. When it comes to John Mack mm. and his book, his abduction books, yeah. and he's interviewing all of these experiencers, mm. 
what do you make of that and what those people are experiencing? Because they're all they're all talking about experiencing the same things, very, very similar things. Yeah, that's that's what kind of attracted me when I first read Abduction. It was the first of John Mack's books that I read. I was as struck by and the fact that it's, this is not just some kook. It's not just a collection of experiences. This these are experiences that have been uh, reported to one of the world's most preeminent psychiatrists, you know, Harvard psychiatrist, who didn't really want to get involved in this abduction stuff. And you can imagine why. And he took a lot of oh, academic yeah. stick for this. I mean, people wanted people wanted him out of his job. He was destroying the reputation of Harvard University by pursuing this. But... Um, he was convinced I mean, he he obviously went into this assuming uh, that they were psychologically disturbed you know these were hallucinations uh, Carl Sagan I remember uh, Carl Sagan John Max said Carl Sagan said to him that they're, they're just hallucinating John and John said what the fuck do you know about hallucinations um, so that's what he had to deal with people who didn't have his training explaining away these experiences that he himself could not explain away and if he was able to explain them, explain them away he would have done this is not someone who was susceptible to being kind of taken in you know he knew about disorders of of, of consciousness disorders mm. of of one's um neurology uh, you could say and he found that these people were perfectly sane what they reported uh, happened to them, as far as they were concerned, happened to them. Um, and not only that, you know, if you read the book, you will, res you, you will. It's absolutely clear that there are so many different commonalities that all describing the same kind of process of being taken up into these you know highly technological environments these beings that work on them um, these particular what appears to be reproductive um, agenda that they have uh, where they're, they're trying to produce hybrid babies apparently and you know abductees meeting their hybrid children and feeling great love for them you know extremely traumatic but um, coherent stories and you know one you get one abductee reporting this experience and then there's more and there's another and another and eventually I think you have to say well this there's something going on here we can't say what it is we can't say okay aliens are landing uh, on the front lawn and going into the bedroom and, and removing them from their bed um, that's a, a jump too far but at the same time what you can't do is say they're just hallucinating. It's, it's incredibly dismissive and I think disrespectful to John Mack's intellect um, to claim that um, he was being misled. He knew. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was talking about. You know, he's an incredibly well-trained psychiatrist. Mm. So if he thought there's something um, strange going on that we can't explain, then... I don't want to appeal to authority here, but there are some people who are worth listening to and some people that aren't. And John Mack was certainly worth listening to. And so I've, you know, I, I tend to focus my attention often on people who, who are worth listening to. And, and John Mack is certainly uh, one of those. Mm. 
Yeah. And then, you know, like we were talking just a minute ago, there's this collective consciousness of human beings where if like, uh, what's his name? Shard Chardin's philosophy. I think the guy's name Chardin. He basically had this philosophy that there was like, um, there was like the biosphere, like like living living beings create the biosphere of Earth, and then there's the nuosphere, mm. which is like oh, Chardin, Pierre Pierre Chardin, Talliard, Come, I can't pronounce French. Talliard de Chardin. That's him. Yeah. Yeah. He was a monk, I think. Yeah. Yes. And um, this nuosphere is like human thought or human consciousness. How it's like this extra layer mm. above the biology of us, and that it's like it permeates everywhere right and it's like it's it's this its own entity and um i think about that a lot when it comes to like technology with screens and people seeing things like when betty and barney hill were abducted right around that time there was this tv program that came out that showed the the gray alien being mm. i forget exactly what the name of the show was but um and then they like described it and then there's all these other people describing it and like the more and more people talk about it there's this collective consciousness mm. or collective understanding of what this thing is and that's what people use to argue against this uh, and against what those people were experiencing well i think well if you think about um this what the noosphere right then yeah yeah it's not <clears throat> so far away from what i was saying earlier about these what John Barrow would have called the type um, type omega minus, right? Uh, right. right. These, advanced, these advanced civilizations that have transcended their biology and instantiated themselves deep in the structure of reality and are kind of everywhere and nowhere at the same time. That sounds kind of similar, a mm-hmm. um, similar idea. So I don't think it's a I don't think it's it's a, 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 an excuse to dismiss these uh, these things at all, uh, because it, it suggests that there is indeed what you call it. You might want to call it the collective unconscious, but I I hate doing that, because you know a lot of particularly DMT users uh, are self-described Jungians, and they say, okay, anything we can't explain, any any experience that is strange or unusual, uh, we'll just put it into the collective unconscious that's where it came from mm. yeah so it becomes really really convenient to me over extremely convenient to just toss things into the collective unconscious uh, which is often very poorly described or poorly defined anyway um so i i need more i need more of a mechanistic clear explanation for what people mean what do you mean when you say that they're coming from the collective unconscious what is that um i i have a very neurobiological interpretation of the collective unconscious you know we we as i said before we we didn't our brain wasn't dropped to the earth ready to start building our model of reality and interacting with the environment it's something that evolved and there are certain patterns that uh, developed in our ancestral history some really basic fundamental ways that we interact with the world uh, the relationship to your mother for example Uh, if you think about your mother 
assuming you had a good relationship, you have a good relationship or had a good relationship with your mother, uh, then it evokes certain feelings. There's certain ways of interacting with this figure called your mother. Um, um, it, it generates a feeling of, of warmth, of protection, of someone you want to move towards and remain with, right? These are basic fundamental human interactions that are wired into our uh, neural architecture and they are deeply embedded and we're born with these. And when you, uh, you could say the same about interacting with enemies in your environment, uh, how do you respond to them? Um, again, deeply wired, emotionally laden um, uh, neural structures that we're all born with. In animals, we would call them instincts. Uh, what are instincts? They are essentially, they're instantiated by patterns of neural structures that have been honed and developed throughout evolution. You don't need to learn. You don't need to learn. Uh, but they're, they're kind of very simple models. They're basic models of how we interact with our environment and with other individuals in our environment. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very... Um, they're quite rigid, uh, they're very strong, um, and um, you don't need to kind of, you don't need to learn these things, they're there, but they're quite simple models, really. You need to elaborate them. Um, so, so for example, there's, uh, if, you, if you take a, um, a, a mouse, yeah, newborn mouse, or set of mice running around in a cage, and you drop, and this, mm, these mice have never had any exposure to any other animals in the environment. You drop a, uh, a bunch of cat hairs into that cage. Those animals start, those mice start, they're very w uh, kind of wary of this fur. Yeah, they, they, they look at it, they, they don't want to approach it, they stop their kind of playing behavior, and they're very curious, but they're very hesitant to go near this fur. It doesn't work with dog fur. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow, right? So they, didn't, they haven't learned this is how you respond, that the cat is the enemy here. Uh, and yet it's, it's embedded because that is a, an embedded neural structure. Their relationship, the way that they interact with a cat is one of fear. It's one of avoidance. Yeah. So these are basic models that we're all born with that. So imagine that in humans now, um, slightly more complex, but still very simple models of the world uh, and our interactions with agents in our environment that are absolutely critical for our survival. Interaction with your mother, certainly in the early stages of your life, that is essential. You will die if you don't know how to respond to your mother. Right. Yeah. Uh, you will die if you don't know how to respond to snakes. You will die uh, if you don't know how to respond to other um, enemy tribes or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So these are important, and you have these. Um, and so it's, it's not surprising then that these can take the form of imageries. As they, there's no images in the unconscious. This is an important point as well, which, which will surprise some people. There are no images deep down. These are very simple models. You know, everything's about models. Everything's about models. The brain is constructing models from the lowest levels of the brain all the way up to the highest levels. The most complex models are constructed in the cortex, as I said, the model of your world. It's a very adaptive. It's a very flexible and fluid, constantly changing models. Then you have simpler models that go, you should go deeper and deeper and deeper down. The deepest levels of the brain, you have models that allow you to control your blood pressure, control your heart rate, control your breathing rate. Yeah, these are very rigid models, yeah, but they're very simple. They, they work, they have to work. They fail, you're dead. Yes, as you go up through the brain, these subcortical regions, you have 
also quite simple models, models of these basic interactions between other humans, for example, or certain animals. This is why people are scared of spiders, why people are scared of snakes. It's instinctive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but they're simple models. And we all carry them. They're collective. This is the collective unconscious, in my opinion. Right. It's not this magical, mystical domain where these beings are inhabiting. It's those it's those universal inherited structures that give rise to certain images. So if I ask you to draw um, a mother, right, or something, or you would come up with something quite different to me. It would be based upon your personal experience. Or if you were to describe a mother, um, it would have certain basic fundamental characteristics, but it would also be, um, uh, it would also be colored by your own personal experience, right? But the model itself is actually very, 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 very simple. Uh, these are the archetypal structures. They're not images. They're basic patterns of neural um, neural connections, neural architecture that you're you are born with. Neuronostic structures. They're often described as. They're not. It's not a realm filled with creatures that are kind of living out their existence. That's not the collective unconscious, in my opinion. It's just the set of universally inherited structures that come from our evolutionary past. So we can we can use the collective unconscious. Um, to explain why certain types of images might emerge. We cannot use these very simple, um, low-level, subcortical um, patterns of activity, these very simple models to explain why people see higher dimensional objects or why they see um, extremely advanced intelligent civilizations existing within this uh, inordinately complete uh, complex space um, that doesn't make sense you're trying to create great complexity from what are actually very simple models it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me that you can explain away um, these type of experiences as archetypal structures. Some people would disagree with me on that, but, mm. but I'm trying to find an explanation that makes sense to me as a neuroscientist. Um, and um, appealing to the collective unconscious to explain anything um, that is otherwise inexplicable is, is a cop-out to me. It's, mm. it's a convenient place to drop things we can't explain, and I just don't agree that that's what the collective unconscious is. What did you think about that video we watched about the uh, the basal ganglia and uh, Gary Nolan's talking about some people have a very hyperactive basal ganglia. What what would that do? What okay. is your opinion? I mean, obviously you didn't know anything about that going in. No, I didn't. You did. And and I'd, I'd have to think about it a lot yeah. more to, to come up with a, a semi coherent um, mm -hmm. response to that. Um, but yes, we can we can think about you know we can look deeper into the brain, um, but we can't. We can't disconnect what we what we understand about the brain, which of course is limited. We don't know everything about what the brain is doing. Mm. We do at least know something about um, the way that the brain is um, is constructed, and the way that the brain evolved, at least, and the way that the brain is constructed from these very simple models deep down to, to more complex models going up. Um, you know, the reason we have a cortex is to allow us to build very complex models. You can't build co complex models or really complex models, certainly not of the complexity of the, of, of the models that are constructed uh, at the cortical level, deep down in these structures. There's simply not the complexity there. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to be careful, I think, about appealing to these lower structures um, to explain away often um, 
anomalous experiences, but there might be a relationship. There could be a relationship when you disturb. It's not all going on at the cortical level. When you start to perturb um, the behavior of the subcortical structures as well, you know, the brain is connected. Everything's working together. You know, you, 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 you stimulate or you inhibit or you somehow uh, disrupt certain areas of the brain and you can have completely unpredictable effects that are going on uh, at the higher level where you're right. experiencing the world right. yeah um, so we saw with lsd for example where you get this effect in, on the cortex but it also causes the release uh, it, it disinhibits these lower subcortical structures like um, the hippocampus for example which is sending constantly sending this memory information up into the cortex you're allowing a, a flood of information uh, into uh, the cortex so you know the brain it's a unified highly complex system uh, and so often disrupting one part of the brain can have completely unpredictable effects that you would never mm. have predicted until you actually do it, until you actually look at it. And then right. you can think about what does that mean? Okay, so let's go into your DMTX research. Oh, yeah. How did you get into this? And how the hell did you get funding for this? Like this is, this is beyond any sort of like clinical trial I have ever heard of. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I didn't get any funding. and You funded it yourself? I don't. Well, I, I don't personally, and I have to always have to correct people on this. Uh, people always talk about my DMTX study or something. I don't do any DMTX studies in humans, right? I live in Tokyo. I don't work with, I don't give humans DMT or anything like that. So let me tell you the story. It'll okay. make sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... So, so as should be kind of clear by now, I, I do take seriously the idea that it's, it's possible that we are indeed communicating uh, with some kind of other intelligence, the, the location and the identity and the origin, the nature of which we have no idea about. So I take that seriously. Um, so then the question arises as well, what do we do about that? Um, DMT reliably grants us access to these intelligences uh, but it is very short acting it's five minutes you know in the space you know you go up this roller coaster phase you burst through this breakthrough phase into this strange very strange domain with these intelligences and then suddenly um, you know maybe just a few minutes later you know it might just be three four five minutes later you're, you're being dragged back out again just as the state is starting to stabilize and you're starting to perhaps establish communication with these entities um, you're being dragged back out so it's not conducive to establishing stable two-way communication with whatever beings are in there for actually studying the space um, studying these intelligences um, developing some kind of relationship with these intelligences to really learn about who the fuck they are. Again, if you take these intelligences seriously and you want to establish communication with them, you want to understand them, you want to know where they're from and what's the relationship between us and them, um, you have to stop treating DMT like a drug. Treat it like a technology. A technology that you develop. I mean, that's it's a fun, it's kind of an important cognitive shift 
Once you start treating DMT like a technology, then you think about, okay, what's the best way to use and develop this technology? That's a crazy way to put it. Yeah, but it's right, yeah? Because then you free yourself from the idea that this is a drug. And you think, okay, this is a technology for entering this alternate reality model, this alternate world filled with these beings. Um, how, do we, how do we develop this technology? How do we improve upon methods of administration and utilization of this molecule? That's the key cognitive uh, switch. Um, and so you know, that switch happened to me and I thought, okay, let's think about how we can improve this technology. So DMT is a fascinating molecule for many for many reasons not just in terms of its effects but also it has these what i call pharmacological peculiarities unlike the other classic psychedelics it's as we said very short acting which is for most people merciful most people five ten minutes in that space quite enough thank you very much quite enough but as i said for extended um journeying in that space to give you more time uh, to interact with these beings and, and study the space, to map the space, to look at the geometry and the topology uh, and the dynamics uh, of this space, you need more time. So how do we extend the time? Well, DMT, it's short acting. It doesn't seem to have subjective tolerance. It's completely non-toxic, it seems. What do you mean? Can you expand on the subjective tolerance part of it? Yeah, so Rick Strassman, so Rick Strassman, of course, did the largest study of DMT in humans in the 90s. I mean, he went through, he was jumping through a lot of fucking hoops to do this work. I mean, no one was doing this work before him, you know, the, with the end of the, the psychedelic dark ages in a way, and certainly in terms of academic study in humans, no one was doing it. So he had to go through, you know, a lot of bureaucracy and permits and licenses and mm. convincing the relevant authorities that they should allow him to do this study uh, with DMT. And, and he made it as boring as possible. He's like proposal, I'm going to measure blood pressure. I'm going to measure skin conductance. I'm going to measure right. heart rate. You know, it's like, was, was didn't, he, didn't he do it for uh, like schizophrenia? And didn't he get like the, the funding from the war on drugs or something? He got, I, I, I can't tell you where he got the funding one from but it wouldn't surprise me mm -hmm. right um, that, that they might fund something as dull you know and uninteresting as that right. but of course what came out of it was was all these trip reports and, wow you know became part of his book DMT the split spirit molecule so that was a that was the real purpose of this study but mm -hmm. of course he didn't tell them genius that. oh yeah oh yeah absolute genius but one of the as well as simply so he, he inject he had like 60 um, volunteers he injected them with uh, bolus DMT which means the injection all in at once or within 30 seconds so a normal DMT trip basically they go into the space they're there for a few minutes and they come back out again standard stuff um, but one study that he did was to look at the the subjective tolerance so uh, if you take something like LSD if you take LSD on day one 
and have your DM, you know, your sorry, your LSD trip, say 100 micrograms. If you take the same dose the next day, you will have a much more kind of diminished experience. So right. There's subjective tolerance there. And there's oh, okay. a number of mechanisms that's going on in the brain why that's the case, but that's what you see. It's sort of like a, a tolerance. Yeah, exactly. A tolerance. Uh, uh, the reason we say subjective tolerance is tolerance to the effects. When you measure the intensity of mm -hmm. the, the effects in the individual, um, they are diminished over time. Um, now, Rick Strassman wanted to test whether that was still the case with DMT. So if he injected someone with DMT and then he measured the intensity of the effects using his hallucinogen rating scale um, and then injected them again 30 minutes later, um, what is the intensity of the effects? Does it go down? And he found that it didn't. It didn't go down. The, the intensity of the effects, the effects remained the same no matter how many times he injected them uh, with DMT which is kind of fascinating. Um, but what that, in itself, it's an interesting scientific result. And it's another one of these interesting pharmacological peculiarities of DMT is it has this, it has this particular characteristic. Um, but to me, this suggested that um, DMT could be utilized uh, um, not by bolus injection, but you could actually infuse DMT uh, into someone's bloodstream and actually maintain a stable brain DMT concentration. And the intensity of the subjective effects would remain constant because there's no subjective tolerance. Yes. And also because it's so rapidly metabolized and removed from the brain, um, it doesn't build up either. Yeah. So these this this technology is called target controlled intravenous infusion TCIV and it's well established uh, as a technology that's been used for decades in anesthesiology okay. so in anesthesiology if you want to put somebody under general general anesthetic what they don't do is um, kind of inject you with the anesthetic um, and then kind of put you to sleep because the anesthetic will rise in the brain and then it will begin to fall so they would go to sleep, they would become unconscious, and then they would start to come out. That's no good if you want to hold someone unconscious for several hours. So what you do instead is you take a very short-acting anesthetic drug with no subjective tolerance so that won't have diminished effects over time, and you infuse it. You, use, you develop what's called a pharmacokinetic model, which is a model, mathematical model of the metabolism, the distribution, uh, the absorption, the, the excretion of the drug over time, uh, which allows you to program this infusion device such that you can maintain a stable brain anesthetic drug concentration. You can push them deeper, mm -hmm. you, raise the con you can bring them into a more shallow anesthetic, anesthetized state. You can have really quite good control. So this is well well-established technology in anesthesiology. And my thought was, well, let's repurpose that. Um, let's replace the anesthetic drug with DMT. Uh, we can develop a mathematical model, the same pharmacokinetic model that's been used for anesthetics, but use it, but create it with using the data from DMT. And I knew Rick Strassman had that data. He published the blood, he was measuring the blood levels of DMT over time. So he had a model, he had a, of the, uh, the absorption and the rise of DMT in the bloodstream and then the subsequent drop-off. So I, I knew he had that data, and that's the data you need to build this pharmacokinetic model. So I thought, okay, this is cool. This, is a, this, this would be a technology for extending the DMT state from 
five minutes to however long you want, an hour, two hours, three hours, uh, you know, an unlimited, really, uh, mm. amount of time within certain practical considerations required. Um, so I, I sent a, an email to, to Rick um, and said, hey, do you still have this data from back in the 90s? This was in 2015. Fortunately, he hadn't, unlike some scientists would have done, kind of discarded or lost the data. So he had this old Excel file, which he fired back to me after about 30 minutes. And I thought, yeah, here we go. So we agreed, we agreed at this point um, to kind of write this paper, to propose this technology. I would do the modeling, um, uh, build this pharmacokinetic model, and then we would get together, we would write the paper and explain why this technology could be useful for extending the DMT state. Um, of course, there was, we didn't necessarily, I didn't, my, my aim was that this would allow us to communicate with these intelligences and spend time in the space for that reason. We didn't write that in the paper. <laughs> you know, um, because it would probably reject it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we wrote that it would be useful for clinical applications to have a much more controlled psychedelic state than is possible with psilocybin. Um, you say, sorry, sorry to interrupt, you on. said it would be rejected. Who are you aiming this paper at? And, and who is like, who are you trying to get approval from? Well, I mean, if you write an academic paper and you want it to be published in a peer-reviewed academic journal, then it needs okay. to be peer-reviewed. Okay. Yeah. So you have to, be, there are certain constraints about things that you can and can't say. Right. Right. If you kind of say things like, you know, alien intelligence, they're just going to go, I'm sorry, this is a bit far out. This is okay. not ours. We wanted a mainstream, sober, proper scientific journal. There are a lot of kooky journals out there that mm -hmm. would have accepted it, but we wanted this to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we kept the paper kind of sober and, and not boring, but bearing in mind um, what we were dealing with here. Um, we worked on the paper together. And then we managed to get it published um, relatively easily. The first journal we went to uh, published the paper for us. And um, that, this was just a proof of principle model. It was basically to say, look, um, this technology should work. Yeah. It wasn't a technology. Here's sirens. That's okay. <laughs> it wasn't a technology uh, or a, a model that was ready to be deployed in humans straight away. We just wanted to show that, hey, DMT has the right uh, pharmacological properties that would, that would make it amenable to this kind of technology. Um, and when the paper was published, you know, it got quite a lot of attention. You know, people were writing articles about, oh, these scientists are building machines to communicate with aliens. A lot of kind of hyperbole. Um, it's a good clickbait headline. Absolutely, yeah. And so for that reason, many people still think that I am injecting people with, with DMT. No, um, that was never the aim, that I would be kind of running these studies. All I wanted to do was put that, plant that seed plant that seed in a scientific consciousness, so to speak, mm. and get people to notice it and to pick it up. And they did, they did. Um, so um, the Imperial College team were, certainly of the academic institutions, were the first to really run with this, with this idea. Um, and they improved upon the model. The model I produced wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a perfect model. It wasn't ready to go into humans. It was a back of the envelope kind of model, proof of principle model. So the Imperial team spent time recruiting you know, pharmacokineticists, pharmacologists to actually 
get a really good model um, ready that would allow them to do this in humans. And they were successful and they recruited uh, maybe two or three years ago, they recruited a small number of volunteers for a uh, pilot project. I think there was 11 people in, in, in this uh, pilot study and um, were successful. They pu published this paper very recently in the, in the last few months and um, demonstrated that it's, it works. It, they can stabilize this DMT state in, in this study for 30 minutes. Uh, 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Um, and it was tolerable. These people, weren't, they weren't freaking out. They weren't going mad. Um, their anxiety levels peaked at the start of the experience and then settled back down to um, to kind of pre-dose uh, pre levels, right? So these were very comfortable in the space. Their heart rate, again, same deal, blood pressure, et cetera. They were dealing with it very well. They were experienced DMT users, by the way. You oh, didn't okay. pull people from the street who've never taken DMT <laughs> before and say, hey, let me infuse you. Um, nothing like that. That would be absurd, of course. Um, but yeah, it was um, um, completely safe, completely tolerable. There's a group in Basel now in Switzerland uh, who have extended it to 90 minutes. And they just published their paper on uh, on this. And again, able to stabilize the experience for 90 minutes at several dose levels. So you can have a light experience where you can push it right through to kind of breakthrough levels. The same kind of level brain concentration as you would get by taking you know, a couple of lungfuls of pure DMT vapor. So real proper DMT, serious DMT experiences, but extended and controllable in real time. Now, what are they doing with these people? Like, while they're infusing these people with DMT, what are they doing specifically to measure stuff? Like, are they literally, is there someone sitting on a chair next to them, talking to them and asking them to talk about stuff? Are they, are the people that are under the DMT, that are getting infused, are they writing down notes? What are they doing? Um, not at this stage. So this was really a safety and tolerability study. It okay. was just a test if it works. Okay. Um, so... So no, they didn't have that. They were getting measurements of things like intensity or uh, entities. Uh, this was actually done after. Um, I think this was done after they came back. They got them to report at certain time periods because they were being told the time, you know, one minute, two minute, five minute, ten minute. So they, they could have some connection to the, the you know, the, the outside world, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the, uh, after the experience, they were told to report on various characteristics of the of the phenomenology and the subject, how intense were the effects, uh, were there a lot of entities, you know, scale of one to 10, how many entities were there, things like this, very broad kind of coarse grained data, um, just to establish that it, you know, it, there wasn't something, nothing horrible was going to happen when you when you in induce someone into this kind of state, which which is you know could have been possible, right? Um, but in my, you know, what what are we going to do with this then? Is is the next question? If if it works and it's safe, it's tolerable. Uh, what do you do with that? And I think, yes, we need to have real time, real time delivery of information from this DMT space from these beings into back to the team waiting on the other side. You can't remember everything. Right. You know, if I ask you to remember everything that happened in the last 30 minutes and give me a, you know, detailed um, breakdown, exactly. you would struggle. So imagine doing that in a DMT experience. No, forget about it. It's over. <laughs> yeah. So so what do you do is you need some technique, uh, which we, we which will need to be developed. Um, to actually deliver information in real time to a team waiting on the other side. What would that look like? What sort of what sort of t 
tools could we use to do a sort of a live a live sort of like relay of what these people are experiencing well how how coherent are you when this is happening um remarkably actually what i hoped would happen is that the the DMT state? As I said, initially it's this roller coaster fate. It's disorientating. You don't know where the fuck you are. You don't know what's happening. Everything's moving and changing very rapidly. Uh, and I was hoping that once the brain settles into constructing this alternate reality model, yeah, which is what it's going on here, um, that it would stabilize and it would, the brain would settle, uh, and that the experience would uh, it would still, of course, progress and you know quite rapidly. Things would change, but it would be more stable, more navigable. Uh, more coherent over time and that seemed to happen um, over time so so that's great that suggests that yes you can navigate or or at least should be able to learn to navigate the space um, and to establish communication with the beings within the space that should be possible then your question how do you get information out in real time and there are a number of ways you can think about this. One is, of course, verbally. You can ask them to, to describe what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, you might have... Um, now, Timothy Leary, interestingly, had a machine. He was, of course, he was most well-known for uh, LSD. But he had um, uh, a deep interest in DMT as well. And he developed this device called the Experiential Typewriter, which was... Two typewriters, really, one in each hand uh, with a number of keys. Uh, and each key was mapped to a certain feature of the, some kind of feature of the subjective experience. Um, and so you would go under, you would be in the DMT space, uh, you know, administer DMT, break through into the DMT space. And then you would, rather than having to speak, um, you would use this keyboard which you would need to be trained upon of course mm. um, to deliver information and they had this one of these old like paper rolls you know with like a pen you know <laughs> that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, so D- Timothy Leary in a way was kind of way ahead of his time here he was already thinking about how do we get information back right. so you can imagine something like that it would be much more sophisticated of course than what you know Timothy Leary could have um, constructed at the time uh, but it was something like that you would have some kind of device that you would have to be trained upon these these voyagers would be trained to control this device in real time and deliver certain types of information now what would that information look like here you need um, specialists you need linguists you need mathematicians mm-hmm. you need um, cartographers you need artists you need theologians you need philosophers you need uh, physicians you need a whole group of people with different um, with different specialisms to think about what kind of information can we bring back here? How can we um, how can we, how can we make sense uh, of the information in real time? Um, you also might use artificial intelligence. Mm. So this is something I've been thinking about uh, a lot recently. Is is can we train? It's like. Um, if I start speaking a foreign language, you can't understand. If I start speaking Japanese now, yeah, I won't do it, but I'll embarrass myself. But if I start speaking Japanese now, um, then you won't have a clue what I'm saying. But someone who spoke Japanese, of course, would, obviously, uh, or an artificial intelligence would know that I'm speaking Japanese. Mm-hmm. Now, 
if I start speaking the DMT language, in other words, if I start delivering information out of the DMT world as it's occurring to me, whether it's through a device, whether it's through uh, verbally or even perhaps even measuring neural activity, nobody on the outside, the, the people might be able to make sense of this, but an AI might. In the same way an AI might be able to decode uh, uh, some kind of language that I'm speaking. If I started speaking Latin or something, the AI would detect I'm speaking Latin and decode that, translate it into English. Uh, you can think of an AI as being able to decode and try to make sense of this information coming out uh, of the DMT space and make sense of it and to you know, maybe can reconstruct the geometry of the space, try to think about, well, he's talking about certain shapes, he's talking about certain patterns. Is there a mathematical <clears throat> formalism that can be used here to think about what's the dimensionality of the space that he's experiencing. If you go into a seven-dimensional space, let's imagine, right? People do describe this co co uh, consistently, not seven-dimensional, but necessarily, but going into high-dimensional spaces. How do you how do you test whether someone really is? They say to you, look, I was in this world, it seemed to have more dimensions than normal. These elves, these fucking little elves were coming and they had these seven, they were singing these impossible objects into existence. These seven dimensional Fabergé eggs, as Terence McKenna used to call them. How do you prove that they really are experiencing a higher dimensional object? It seems impossible without getting without getting them. You could get a mathematician to go into the space, but mm. even a mathematician probably wouldn't would know how to formalize mathematically what a seven dimensional object or seven dimensional space looks like. You can do the maths quite easily, relatively easily, I guess. Um, but actually, being able to conceive what a seven dimensional object would look like is is impossible. We can't do it. Our brains, and again, this is why DMT is so confounding: is the brain can't construct seven-dimensional spaces. It's, it's used to constructing a three-dimensional space. So that, and again, I'm going off on a tangent here. That's also why DMT is kind of very difficult to explain. Why can the brain suddenly start constructing high-dimensional worlds? Um, so if we can prove that these individuals really are experiencing a higher-dimensional world, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine dimensions, that in itself gives... Um, some weight to the idea that we're dealing with some other space, that this really is some other um, reality that we're interfacing with here. Mm. So how do we prove it? Mm, you can think of tests that you might give the, the subjects. Um, uh, but you might ask the subjects to describe you know, what they're seeing, describing the way lines interact, describing the kind of shapes that they're seeing, the kind of structures. If you get someone experienced perhaps a, you know, a topologist or an algebraic topologist or some other high-dimensional mathematician in that space, they, they can describe, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this shape, I'm seeing this shape, seeing this form, uh, this particular topology I'm seeing now. You feed that to an AI, and the AI uh, you know, um, integrates all that information and says, oh, it looks like this individual is within a six-dimensional space or something. Mm. You see what I mean? Right. So, so the AI can interpret data that to us just looks, looks like fragmented pieces of information, mm. bring it together and say, what kind of world is this person experiencing? So I think that could be really, really cool if you get an AI that's trained on higher-dimensional data sets. Mm. Um, and, right. You know, it can do, it can reduce it down to the mathematical formalisms and say, okay, this is a six-dimensional space that this person mm. is experiencing. That would be 
fucking wild if, if that could be uh, achieved. If we could achieve this and figure out exactly what this is, what how many levels, how many dimensions there are and, and sort of like map this other world that people are going to better, what would that mean for us? And what what sort of applicate, what could we use this for? And what would be the implications mm. of being able to have a, get some sort of a real grip on what's going on there and where it, and what it is? Well, I think there are a number of levels here. So first of all, the fact that we have access to a world, uh, the fact that our brain can construct a world that bears no relationship to our reality, that is inordinately complex and rich and dynamic and filled with intelligent beings, um, that in itself is remarkable. That in itself is worthy of, of study. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it you know, it, so I think even if you don't accept that we're interfacing with some actual other autonomous intelligence even so uh it's 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 a state of consciousness that should be studied so minimally minimally um, um the technology should be developed to actually explore this space i think that that goes without saying um but i think if we find uh, if we are able to kind of definitively demonstrate that these are worlds that are higher dimensional, um, that are in many ways impossible, seem impossible for the brain to construct, um, then we are in a difficult situation. Well, an orthodox scientists are in a very difficult situation because they're faced with the the data they're faced with incontrovertible evidence that dmt grants you access to worlds that the brain shouldn't be able to construct which suggests that indeed there is perhaps um uh, some interface some interaction some gating of the flow of information from some other domain some other reality filled with actual intelligences who exist from their own side. And that, in my opinion, would be the most profound and shattering discovery in the history of humankind. No doubt about it. Fuck the wheel, man. This is, this is light years ahead of that. We cannot comprehend of the kind of uprooting uh, of our place in the cosmos, our place within reality, uh, than the discovery not only that intelligences exist and not only inside our universe, but that intelligences exist elsewhere in another domain that's not within our universe, but which has a close relationship in some hidden way to our universe and, and that we can communicate with these intelligences with such facility as inhaling a couple of lungfuls of this simple ubiquitous plant alkaloid that to me would would be well it, i i don't have words for the the significance and the importance of that discovery so if right. there's a small chance that that's what we could be dealing with we must pursue it and this, you know this is really interesting too when it goes to some of the stuff that graham hancock is talking about mm. with ancient civilizations and some of this evidence of things like Gobekli Tepe, which is like 12,000 years ago, and even the pyramids in Egypt, and some of these other 
these other things that we've found around the world that we can't explain with we can't things that we could not construct today if we wanted to right and people you know you think it's like some high technology you know what sort of crazy technology did they have some enormous scale pulleys or saws that could cut some of the hardest stones that exist on earth that we can't even do today But like, if you think about it the way you're talking about it, is this high technology inside of us? Yeah, I mean, in in a way, it, it in a way it is. We are constructing these realities. So a brain is a brain is um, the fact that the brain can construct these realities, as I've said several times, is in itself confounding. It's remarkable. It suggests that there's there's, there's some ability there that we we weren't aware of we weren't aware of it suggests right. that i often describe this idea that we have this hyperdimensional heritage it's a world that's not so much alien but a world from which we have become alienated dmt grants us this brief but astonishing glimpse at this remarkable hyperdimensional heritage where does that heritage come from why is dmt so at home uh, in our brain um, the brain why is the brain able to shift so effortlessly and so efficiently into constructing this alternate reality model? Does it suggest right. that there is some distant relationship here? Maybe some ancestral function. Was DMT an ancestral neuromodulator in some way? Was it present at much higher concentrations in our brain in prehistory? We don't know. But that might explain you know, that perhaps there's been... Uh, some kind of degrading of the function of producing DMT in our brain over time. We become much more cemented as such in this consensus model of reality and more alienated from, more disconnected from this other reality. And perhaps there were intelli- uh, there were earlier humans, many tens of thousands of years ago, perhaps, or perhaps even closer than that, who were... Um, who were more connected to this other domain mm. uh, and were able to access it, whether through using exogenous DMT from right. plants or whatever, or perhaps more likely uh, uh, from altered neurochemistry. So they're ape- so at times, uh, DMT levels in their brain were rising. Their endogenous DMT was, was higher. Their endogenous DMT was higher. And, and I wrote a paper back in 2013 where I suggested that perhaps ancient dream function um, was related to DMT. So you can imagine DMT levels having a kind of diurnal cycle. So they they drop down during the day when we're interacting with the normal waking world, the consensus world, the environment, when we need to be very, very aware of our environment. When we're asleep and we're dreaming, we this is when DMT levels rise and allows us to access in the dream state this alternate reality. So these would be ancient DMT dreams, if you like. So we would live kind of parallel lives lives both in this world and at night we would be interacting with this alternate reality and perhaps receiving information that we could use then in doing these kind of amazing structures and amazing kind of technologies that they had in those days that's a possibility i'm not saying it's true uh, but it's an idea and since we've lost that function um, we've become alienated from that world and this is also perhaps why when people take DMT there is this profound sense of deja vu and familiarity deja vu you really get this sense that this is the most fucking bizarre experience I couldn't possibly have imagined and yet 
at the same time it is intensely familiar i know this place i've been here really they welcome you back you know the lights start flashing the bells are ringing there's your name literally in light he's returned we haven't seen you for so long um terence mckenna used to say right it was kind of like that there's so many people describe that uh, of being welcomed home in a sense like we've been away for so so very long and that would make sense if there was some much deeper relationship with that reality in our ancestral past and that some of that neural architecture that those inherited neural structures i was talking about earlier have been Mm, degraded but still carried with us and we're kind of reactivating this ancestral function by consuming exogenous DMT rather than relying on endogenous DMT but you're going back to those same kind of worlds that these ancient humans would have been experiencing using perhaps endogenous DMT levels right that's a cool idea right it is a great idea mm. I mean it does make sense too especially with yeah. like the evidence of like the younger the younger dryas cataclysms that came and wiped out civilization and there was a couple proto hominids that survived possibly and they were much more primal and and we sort of evolved like we had to sort of like reset yeah. and maybe we didn't we didn't go in the right direction got it yeah so we became more cemented in our consensus model of reality and we completely lost contact with that but mm. we're rediscovering it now and what's interesting is we're rediscovering it at a time when we are Perhaps we needed time away to develop ourselves, to develop our, to become more cognitively and technologically sophisticated. So now we know more, perhaps, about what to do. We've rediscovered this space um, just when we are, uh, I mean, 1956, right? So this isn't that long ago, just as we were becoming a really clearly technological uh, species right we are at the stage in our in our advancement where we're beginning to think about other intelligences right. elsewhere right that's the time dmt comes back it's rediscovered and we we're starting to learn to use it and go back into reconnect ourselves from uh reconnect ourselves to this other domain but with much better cognitive and technological tools at our disposal so i see dmtx as being part of that rediscovery and redevelopment of dmt as this technology for uh, reacquainting and reconnecting with this domain with the intelligences that are resonant within it so what what are you working on currently like where what state are you at in dmtx and like what's next for it well as i said I, i'm not directly i know you're involved. not directly, right yeah with, you kind with of developed the, the yeah just the kind of the model and but i think you can imagine a hundred different ways that this this kind of research and you can imagine many different research groups by the way picking up on this and, and developing their own protocols and yeah what are you going to do can can you perform experiments within the space um can you establish stable communication with the intelligence can you decode their language um can you map the space to some extent mm. map the geometry and the topology of the space is that possible um you know the possibilities we've discovered a new world this is a new world far stranger i mean imagine when columbus landed on the shores of, of the united states it was columbus right yeah 
Yeah. You know your American history. Yeah, yeah, Columbus. There we go. You know, a new frontier, right? A new world. Mm-hmm. Immense possibilities lay before. Yeah. And here we are now. After all that, you know, not that long, actually, it's a few hundred years, right? Right, right. Uh, now, imagine we're at that same kind of phase, but we've discovered a world that is incomprehensibly stranger and more complex and vaster than anything that the Columbus could have dreamt about. So you open up this new world and possibilities are quite literally endless, you know, endless worlds, endless landscapes, endless intelligences. It's like, it's unfathomable what we might have discovered here uh, and, and the potential for how we might use it, how we might explore, navigate, study. Yeah. Relations, establishing relationships with the intelligence within the space, thinking about their nature, their origin, what can, they can tell us, what we can get from them, um, what we can give to them, maybe. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for doing this. We just did three and a half hours. That was, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, so what is, which one of these books is your most recent book? The Reality Switch Technologies? Or? Reality Switch Technologies. Can okay. I do that? Yes, absolutely. Hold it right next to your face. A little bit back. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, Beautiful. So, yeah. So the Reality Switch Technologies um, is my latest book. So And what's the, hold up the other one too. The freaking cover is so cool. Yeah. You designed it yourself. Everything. So it's, and it's the, you know, the inside as well. You've got, it's full color and kind of, this is kind of a digital um, early computer game kind of vibe I was going for there. And it's, this one's called Alien Information Theory. Yeah. Psychedelic drug technologies and the cosmic game. Yeah. So that's a very speculative metaphysics kind of book about speculating about, you know, what is possibly the relationship between uh, our reality and this alien intelligence and and, uh, what is the relationship between those and DMT. So it's very speculative. Uh, It's kind of one vision. The idea is to get people thinking about what we really understand and what could actually be true. And the, the actual truth of the matter is probably far stranger. You know, reality is not just um, stranger than we suppose, it's stranger than we can suppose. Uh, and so I want to get people thinking about what could really be going on, mm. the, you know, the origins of our, our reality and, and where we might be heading. Reality Switch Technologies, my second book, is more about talking about today I was talking about the idea the brain is a world building machine it's also a world building tool so we can think about the brain can access these can construct these alternate realities the the DMT reality for example the DMT worlds you can also construct these strange bizarre salvia worlds you can also reach other kind of worlds using ketamine uh, or using the tropane alkaloids scopolamine you know you've got all these different worlds your brain so your brain can construct a number a large number, perhaps a a practically infinite number of worlds um, using psychedelics. Whether you think these worlds are real spaces or whatever, we know the brain can construct them. Mm. So you have this like, you think of the brain as this tool that you can tune, this world building machine that you can tune using these molecules and reach these spaces. So I um, wrote this book and it's also really, in my opinion, the most detailed and comprehensive and thorough guide to how psychedelics work in the brain. That's what I wanted to write. That book didn't exist. A really good that anyone who is not a neuroscientist or pharmacologist, anyone that's 
curious and interested and is willing to spend the time with the book. It's not an easy read by any stretch of the imagination. But if you want to develop a really deep understanding for how psychedelics interface with the human brain from the molecular level all the way up to the cortical level, the world-building level that we've been talking about mm. today, this book, uh, this book will do it. So, yeah. Well, thank you for doing this stuff. I mean, it's, very it's so often that people like you, that like you with your level of education, are are so worried about being labeled with people like being labeled as a kooky psychedelic guy, or they're too worried about not being taken seriously. But and they they present stuff in just like this boring, bland, undigestible way. Yeah, but yeah. But you've yeah. done it in a phenomenal, incredibly immersive, entertaining way the way you created your books and and the way you talk about this too it's just it's so fascinating so like huge kudos to you for doing that and having the balls to to dive into this world and not being worried about being attached to any sort of stigmas or not being take not worried about being taken seriously well that's I mean, really cool i mean i i piss off everybody i mean yeah. I, on the on the kind of the scientific side the really kind of rigid orthodox scientific side they say that i'm getting into realms that i have no right going into whatever <laughs> then on the other side you have the more mystical kind of spiritual guys who say mm. oh you're too reductionist this is too brain centered mm. so I, I i sit in this this little domain on my own in the right in the middle of those so i'm used to being kind of attacked on both sides so right. i don't care really i'm not attached to any university anymore i'm just a writer <laughs> um so i don't care who thinks that i'm a kook i, I just try to present ideas i think of, about these molecules and their potential and about reality and uh, i present these ideas for hopefully to get people thinking mm -hmm. uh, about uh, our the nature of our reality and um, about how, uh, how psychedelics can manipulate uh, the nature of our reality and um, and people can take away uh, from that what they like. Well, thank you for doing it. And thank you for coming all the way to Florida from Tokyo. <laughs> um, I'll link the books below so people can find them. Thank you very much, Danny. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. Good night, world.